So, I recorded the episode I needed to make up. Oh, wait, I forgot my intro. Hello, everybody, Sucre Aro here, and you're listening to Year of Blank, Year of Stories. We are once again reading My Sister's Keeper by Jodi Picoult, which I just read the pages that I needed to catch up on to post this episode, and then I lost it because my computer was being a jerk and closed the entire window before the recording had finished downloading, so it's just gone. It's gone now, and I can't do anything about it, and I made a lot of commentary in there, and it's just gone. Two hours of recording. Gone. I'm upset. I'm so upset. But, like, I still need to get this posted, okay? I know that, and I need to finish this book. They said several times in the recording that got deleted that I would be finishing this by tomorrow. So if there's a shocking lack of commentary and I sound a little angry, then it's fine, because I am, okay? You would be angry, too, if you just lost two hours of your work. So, I'm just going to start. If I need to, I'll leave. Give myself more water. Or come back the next day. And finish all of this. One shot go. Okay? So you know where we left off. And I read this already, so it's going to be dull. And I won't have any reactions. Well, I might, because there are still some embarrassing things to read. Mr. Makes My Dick Hard. You'll know. You'll know when it happens if you heard my muttered comment. Sarah, 2001. Brian and I are sitting on the couch, sharing sections of the newspaper, when Anna walks into the room. If I mow the lawn, like, until I get married, she asks, can I have $614.96 right now? Why? we ask simultaneously. She rubs her sneaker into the carpet. I need a little cash. Brian folds the national news section. I didn't think Gap jeans had gotten quite that expensive. I knew you'd be like this, she says, ready to huff away. Hang on, I sit up, rest my elbows on my knees. What is it you want to buy? What difference does it make? Anna, Brian says, we're not forking over 600 bucks without knowing what it's for. She weighs this for a minute. It's something on eBay. My ten-year-old serves eBay? Okay, she sighs. It's goaltender leg pads. I look at Brian, but he doesn't seem to understand either. For hockey? He says. Well, duh. Anna, you don't play hockey, I point out. When she blushes, I realize this may not be the case be the case at all. Where the fuck am I? Brian presses her into an explanation. A couple of months ago, the chain fell off my bike right in front of the hockey rink. A bunch of guys were practicing, but their goalie had mono. And the coach said he'd pay me five bucks to stand in net and block shots. I borrowed the sick kid's equipment, and the thing is, I wasn't that bad at it. I liked it, so I kept coming back. Anna smiled shyly. The coach asked me to join the team for real, before the tournament. I'm the first girl on it, ever, but I have to have my own equipment which costs $614. 
and 96 cents. That's just the leg pads, though. I still need a chest protect protector and catcher and a glove and a mask. She stares at us expectantly. We have to talk about it, I tell her. Anna mutters something that sounds like figures and walks out of the room. Did you know she was playing hockey? Brian asks me, and I shake my head. I wonder what else my daughter has been hiding from us. We are about to leave the house to watch Anna playing hockey for the first time when Kate announces she isn't going. Please, Mom, she begs. Not when I look like this. She has an angry red rash all over her cheeks, palms, soles, and chest, and a moon face, courtesy of the steroids she takes to treat it. Her skin is rough and thickened. These are the calling cards of Grass versus host disease, which Kate developed after her bone marrow transplant. For the past four years, it's come and gone, flaring up when we least expect it. Bone marrow is an organ, and like a heart or a liver, a body can reject it. But sometimes, instead, the transplanted marrow begins to reject the body it's been put in. The good news is that if that happens, all the cancer cells are under siege, too. Something doc Dr. Chance calls graft versus leukemia disease. The, the bad news is the symptomology, the chronic diarrhea, the jaundice, the loss of range of motion in her joints, the scarring and sclerosis wherever there's connective tissue. I'm so accustomed to this that it doesn't faze me, but when the graft versus host disease flares up this badly, I let Kate stay home from school. She is 13, and appearance is paramount. I respect her vanity, because there is so little of it. But I cannot leave her alone in the house, and we have promised Dana will come watch her play. This is really important to your sister. In response, Kate flops onto the couch and pulls a throw pillow over her face. Without saying another word, I walk to the hall closet and pull a variety of items from drawers. I hand the gloves to Kate, then jam the hat on her head and wind the scarf around her nose and mouth, so that the only the, that only her eyes are visible. It'll be cold in the rink, I say, in a voice that leaves no room for anything but acceptance. I, I need a break. I can't do this right now. Okay. It's a new day. Need to get these episodes out by Saturday. I swear to God, I want to start this new book Saturday. I need to start this new book Saturday. And I also realized it wasn't just two hours of recording I lost. It was three hours of my life gone to waste. I don't remember exactly where I left off, but whatever. I'll just go where I think I left off, and if I'm repeating sentences, then you can go fuck yourself if you're upset about it. That was really harsh, but I can't bring myself to really give a shit. And the book is breaking along the spine because I got this second hand where it had been stashed in a basement for ages. <laughs> I'm not having a good time. Having a good time. Superstar. Whatever the hell that song is. You know what I'm talking about if you're cultured. I promise I'm not always like this. You know I'm not always like this. This is just an unforeseen circumstance where I cannot bring myself to tack on a little happy voice and not be a bitch towards everyone.
but I cannot leave her alone in the house, and we have promised Anna will come watch her play. This is really important to your sister. In response, Kate flops onto the couch and pulls a throw pillow over her face. Without saying another word, I walk to the hall closet and pull a variety of items from drawers. I hand the gloves to Kate, then jam the hat on t- the hat on her head and wind the scarf around her nose and mouth so that only her eyes are visible. It'll be cold in the rink, I say, in a voice that leaves no room for anything but acceptance. I barely recognize Anna, stuffed and trussed and tied into equipment that, eventually, we wound up borrowing from the coach's nephew. You cannot tell, for example, that she is the only girl on the ice. You cannot tell that she is two years younger than every other player out there. I wonder if Anna can hear the cheering through her helmet, or if she's so focused on what's coming toward her that she blocks it all out, concentrating instead on the scrape of the puck and the smack of the sticks. Jesse and Brian sit on the edge of their seats. Even Kate, so reluctant to come, is getting into the game. The opposing goalie, compared to Anna, moves in slow motion. The action switches like a current, the play moving from the far goal toward Anna's. The center passes to the right wing, who skates for broke, his blade slicing through the roar of the cheering crowd. Anna steps forward, sure of where the puck is going a moment before it arrives, her knees bent in, her elbows pointed out. Unbelievable, Ryan says to me after the second period. She's got natural talent as a goalie. That much, I could have told him. Anna saves. Every time. Oh! I just realized that could also be the mother referring to the cancer situation. Because whenever Kate is in trouble, Anna is called in to donate something that will temporarily save Kate. And I said, I say temporarily because she, Kate is always relapsing. Like, I'm not going to say always going to. But from the course of this book, she has reprieve and then she relapses again. And when the relapse comes, then Anna is called in to to save her for a bit more. So, okay, now I'm not as mad about having to read this again because I never, I never would have noticed that. I wouldn't, I didn't notice that the first time. Like, either first time. Because I'm considering, like, reading these pages to be a second read when reading this whole book again is a second read, but it's been so long that I can't really remember things and have further insight aside from being more mature. You know? You know? That night, Kate wakes up with blood streaming out of her nose, her rectum, and the sockets of her eyes. I have never seen so much blood, and even as I try to stanch the flow, I wonder how much of it she can stand to lose. By the the time we reach the hospital, she is disoriented and agitated, finally slipping into unconsciousness. The staff pump her full of plasma, blood, and platelets to to replace the lost blood, which seems to leak out of her just as quickly. They give her IV fluids to prevent hypovolemic shock and intubate her. They take CT scans of her brain and her lungs to see how far the bleeding has spread. In spite of all the times we have run to the ER in the middle of the night, all the times Kate's relapse with sudden symptoms, Brian and I know it has never been quite this bad. A nosebleed is one thing, system failure is another. Twice now, she's had cardiac arrhythmias. The hemorrhaging keeps her brain, heart, liver, lungs, and kidneys from receiving the flow they need to work. 
Dr. Chance takes in, takes us into the little lounge at the at the end of the pediatric ICU floor. It is painted with smiley face daisies. On one wall is a growth chart, a four foot tall inchworm. How big can I grow? Brian and I sit very still, as if we will be rewarded for good behavior. Arsenic, Brian repeats. Poison? It's a very new therapy, Dr. Chance explains. You get it intravenously for 25 to 60 days. To date, we haven't effected a cure with it. That's not to say it might not happen in the future, but at the moment, we don't even have five-year survival, survival curves. That's how new the drug is. As it is, Kate's exhausted cord blood, allergenic transplant, radiation, chemo, and, and ATRA. She's lived 10 years past what any of us would have expected. I find myself nodding already. Do it, I say, and Brian looks down at his boots. We can try it, but in all likelihood, the hemorrhaging will still beat out the arsenic, Dr. Chance tells us. I stare at the growth chart on the wall. Did I tell Kate I left her before I put her to bed last night? I cannot remember. I cannot remember at all. Shortly after 2 a.m., I lose Brian. He slips out when I am falling asleep beside Kate's bed and doesn't come back for over an hour. I ask for him at the nurse's desk. I search the cafeteria and the men's room, all empty. Finally, I locate him at the end of the hallway, in a tiny atrium that was named in some poor dead child's honor. A room of light and air and plastic plants that a neutropenic patient could enjoy. He sits on an ugly brown corduroy couch, writing furiously with a blue crayon on a piece of scratch, scrap paper. Hey, I say quietly, remembering how the kids would color together on the floor of the kitchen, crayons spilled like wildflowers between them. Trade you a yellow for your blue. Brian glances up, startled. Is Kate's fine? Well... She's the same. Steph, the nurse, has already given her the first induction of arsenic. She has also given her two blood transfusions to make up for what she's losing. Maybe we should bring Kate home, Brian says. Well, of course we... I mean now, he steeples his hands. I think she'd want to die in her own bed. That word, between us, explodes like a grenade. She isn't going to... Yes, she is. He looks at me, his face carved by pain. She is dying, Sarah. She will die, either tonight or tomorrow or maybe a year from now if we're really lucky. You heard what Dr. Chance said. Arsenic's not a cure. It just postpones what's coming. My eyes fill up with tears. But I love her, I say, because that is reason enough. So do I. Too much to keep doing this. The paper he has been scribbling on falls out of his hands and lands at my feet. Before he can reach it, I pick it up. It is full of tear stains, of cross-outs. She loved the way it smelled in, in spring, I read. She could be anyone at gin rummy. She could dance even if there wasn't music playing. There are notes on the side, too. Favorite color, pink. Favorite time of day, twilight. Used to read. Used to read where the wild things are, over and over, and still knows it by heart. All the hair stands up on the back of my neck. Is this a eulogy? By now, Brian is crying, too. If I don't do it now, I won't be able to when it's really time. I shake my head. It's not time. I call my sister at 3.30 in the morning. I woke you, 
I say, realizing the minute Zan gets on the phone that for her, for everyone normal, it is the middle of the night. Is it Kate? I nod, even though she cannot hear that. Hear that. Zan? Yeah? I close my eyes, feel the tears squeeze out. Sarah, what's the matter? Do you want me to come down there? It is hard to speak around the enormous pressure in my throat. Truth expands until it can choke you. As kids, Zan's bedroom and mine shared a hallway, and we used to fight about leaving the light on through the night. I wanted it burning. She didn't. Put a pillow over your head, I used to tell her. You can make it dark, but I can't make it light. Yes, I say, sobbing freely now. Please. Against all odds, Kate survives for ten days on intense transfusions and arsenic therapy. On the eleventh day of her hospitalization, she slips into a coma. I decide I will keep a bedside vigil until she wakes up, and I do this for exactly 45 minutes until I receive a phone call from the principal of Jesse's school. Apparently, the metal sodium is stored in the high school since laboratory and science laboratory in small containers of oil because, it's volatile rea because of its volatile reaction with air. Apparently, it is water reactive, too, creating hydrogen and heat. Apparently, my ninth grader was bright enough to realize this, which is why he stole the sample, flushed it down the toilet, and exploded the school's septic tank. After he is expelled for three weeks by the principal, a man who has the decency to ask after Kate while basically telling me that my eldest is destined for the state penitentiary, Jesse and I drive back to the hospital. Needless to say, you're grounded. Whatever. Until you're 40. Jesse slouches, and if it is possible, his brows knit even more closely together. I wonder when, exactly, I gave up on him. I wonder why, when Jesse's history is not by any stretch as disappointing as his sister's. The principal's a dick. You know what, Jess? The world's full of them. You will always be up against someone. Something. He glares at me. You could take a conversation about the friggin' Red Sox and somehow turn it back to Kate. We pull into the hospital parking lot, but I make no move to shut off the car. Rain pelts the windshield. We're all pretty gifted at that. Or were you blowing up the septic tank for some other reason? You don't know what it's like being the kid whose sister is dying of cancer. I have a fairly good idea, since I'm the mother of the kid who, who is dying of cancer. You're absolutely right. It does suck. And sometimes I feel like blowing something up, too, just to get rid of that feeling that I'm going to explode any minute. I glance down and notice a bruise the size of a half dollar, right in the crook of his arm. There's a matching one on the other side. It is telling, I suppose, that my mind immediately races to heroin instead of leukemia, as it would with his sister's. What's that? He folds his arms. Nothing. What is it? None of your business. It is my business. I pull down his forearm. Is that from a needle? He lifts his head, eyes blazing. Yeah, Ma. I shoot up every three days. Except I'm not doing smack. I'm getting blood taken out of me on the third floor here. He stares at me. Didn't you wonder who else was keeping Kate in platelets? He gets out the out the car before I can stop him, leaving me staring out a windshield where nothing is clear anymore.
Sarah Fitzgerald is so fucked up. Like... Honestly, it's just so, so fucked up. And yeah, I'm saying the fuck word. I'm saying the fuck word and no one is stopping me. Okay? Fuck. But... (laughs) This book is, like, so fucked. It's just fucked. There's so much happening... And so many characters being continuously hurt. It's so shitty. Like, not shitty as in written poorly, but shitty as in situationally. It's terrible for these characters. Jodie Picoult is an excellent author for the way that she portrayed this. And all of the characters in a way that you both feel for them and hate them on occasion. Like me with Sarah Fitzgerald. It's great. It's wonderfully written. Honestly. God. Where am I? There I am. Two weeks after Kate is admitted to the hospital, the nurses convince me to take a day off. I come home and shower in my own bathroom, instead of the one used by the medical staff. I pay overdue bills. Sam, who is still with us, makes me a cup of coffee. It is fresh and ready when I come down with my hair wet and combed. Anyone call? If by anyone you mean the hospital, then no. She flips the page of the cookbook she's reading. This is such bullshit, Zan says. There is no joy in cooking. The front door opens and slams shut. Anna comes racing into the kitchen and stops abruptly at the sight of me. What are you doing here? I live here, I say. Zan clears her throat, contrary to appearances. But Anna doesn't hear whore. Whore. No! This is the second time I've done that! No! Not with this book. This is the first time I've done it with this book. But if you remember the heartbreak messenger back in February, I I misread her as a whore too. Like not misread, but just the way I said it. No. Why? No. <laughs> But Anna doesn't hear her, or doesn't want to. She has a smile as wide as a canyon on her face, and brandishes a note in front of me. It was sent to Coach Coach Ehrlich. Read it, read it, read it! Dear Anna Fitzgerald, congratulations on being accepted into the Girls and Goals Summer Hockey Camp. This year, camp will be held in Minneapolis from July 3rd to 17th. Please fill out the attached paperwork and medical history and return by 4.30.01. As in the date. So, wait. April 30th, 2001 would be the date. See you on the ice. Coach Sarah Tooting. I finished scanning the letter. 
You let Kate go to that sleepaway camp when she was my age, the one for kids with leukemia, Anna says. Do you have any idea who Sarah Tooting is? The goalie on Team USA. And I don't just get to meet her. I get to have her tell me what I'm doing wrong. Coach got a full scholarship for me, so you don't even have to pay a dime. They'll fly me out on a plane and give me a dorm room to stay in and everything, and nobody gets a chance like this ever. Honey, I say carefully, you can't do this. But she shakes her head, as if she's trying to make the words fit. But it's not now or anything. It's not till next summer. And Kate might be dead by then. It is the first time I can ever... I can remember Anna ever indicating that she sees an end to this timeline, a moment when she might finally be free of obligation to her sister. Until that point, going to Minnesota is not an option, not because I am afraid of what might happen to Anna then, but because I am afraid of what might happen to Kate while her sister is gone. If Kate survives this latest relapse, who knows how long it will be before another crisis happens. And when it does, we will need Anna, her blood, her stem cells, her tissue, right here. The facts hang between us like a filmy curtain. Zan gets up and puts her arm around Anna. You know what, bud? Maybe we should talk about this with your mom some other time. No. Anna refuses to budge. I want to know why I can't go. I run a hand down my face. Anna, don't make me do this. Do what, mom? She says hotly. I don't make you do anything. She crumples the letter and runs out of the kitchen. Zan smiles weakly at me. Welcome back, she says. Outside, Anna picks up a hockey stick and starts to shoot against the wall of the, car- of the garage. She keeps this up for nearly an hour, a rhythmic beat, until I forget she is out there and begin to think a home might have its own pulse. Now, another comment I can ba- make, going back to this line, and when it does, we will need Anna, her blood, her stem cells, her tissue, right here. Anna is being dehumanized to a factor where she is only seen as what she can give to her sister and not what she can achieve on her own with her own skill and being. So, with the smallest of sentences, so many things are said in the depth of Sarah's character, which, like... I haven't given this book enough credit to the author, and I've realized that for a lot of the books I've read, I, these authors, I'm fully pausing from reading right now to address this, because this is important to me to address this. These authors that are constructing, aside from Alexander Vance, fuck Alexander Vance. If you don't remember who that was, he was the author of The Heartbreak Messenger, and that book was a train wreck. But, aside from him, and Roald Dahl is like a neutral, in a way. Like, these books, I have not given enough full and proper credit towards the authors of these books, aside from just saying their names, which that's the bare minimum that I have to do. But these authors have worked so hard to construct something so 
beautiful and so deep with like simple character arcs and this tackles so many hard subjects but it is so beautifully written that it's not as painful as it could be. Well, it's both less painful and more painful. And I know that doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but it makes perfect sense to me. Because it takes true skill. And I'm saying skill because a lot of people find it demeaning or belittling to their years of refining their craft if you simply refer to it as talent because that implies this is a lesson for anyone listening referring to someone's trained skill like art makeup art writing academics and referring to that as talent is erasing even unintentionally the years of effort they have put into this. The potential sleepless nights, the studies, the countless reading they must have done of other authors and novels, the people they have connected to to be able to write something this potentially messed up in a way. Like, if you wrote this book currently that we're reading, if you wrote this wrong, then it could be the end of your career. Like, the wrong medical terminology, belittling in the slightest mannerism, the absolute torment that family with someone with cancer must go through. Like, writing this wrong could be terrible, but this is so well written. It's incredible. And we get to see so many different perspectives because of how it's constructed. And Jody Picoult is amazing for this book. And from this point forward, not like moments like this where I fully praise, like in between, but I... And if you, con- if you know my contact stuff, like if you're one of my friends and I link to this, hold me accountable on this. I need to be better at acknowledging these authors for what they've written, aside from the bare minimum. Because I don't want to be a bare minimum person. For me, I do not want to be a bare minimum person. My friends would sometimes draw me pictures to put in my binders, and I would insist they signed them. And even if they didn't want to, because I hate taking credit away from someone who has put in so much work into something so beautiful. And I feel like that is something I have partially been doing by putting my own voice into these books, but not putting so much effort into having the names of these authors heard. So, vocally, I need to be saying their names instead of just putting it into a description. And if my friends are listening to this, if they're catching up 
and they're hearing this right now, hold me accountable to that. Because these authors deserve so much more than what I am giving them currently. God. I made this too heavy just now. But it needed to be said. It's something I've been thinking about for a bit. But it needed to be said. Especially since these authors, like... I'm not profiting any, but I don't know how they're profiting any from their work. And if the profit that they can get could be publicity given to them from this podcast, if you like this one book and you think, let's look into this author, then I want to be that person creating that bridge for them, if that's possible. You know? At least this year, because as you know, the concept of the podcast, every year changes topic and all that. But for this year, it is so important to me, since I'm reading so many things and I'm not personally putting as much work into the podcast yet, with research and all of that, it's very important to me to ensure that I am giving credit where credit is due, and I don't think I've been doing that adequately enough. So now that that's said and done and out of the way, and I've gone on my little tangent, I'll continue reading this beautiful book. So I went to that line, and here we are. 17 days after Kate is admitted to the hospital, she develops an infection. Her body spikes a fever. She is painful. She is pan-cultured, blood, urine, stool, and sputum sent out to isolate the organism, but is put on a broad-spectrum antibiotic right away in the hopes that whatever is making her sick might respond. Steph, our favorite nurse, stays late some nights just so so, so that I don't have to face this by myself. She brings me people magazines, filched from the day surgery waiting rooms, and holds sunny one-sided conversations with my unconscious daughter. She is a model of resolve and optimism on the surface, but I have seen her eyes cloud with tears as she is sponge-bathing Kate, in the moments when she doesn't think I can see her. One morning, Dr. Chance comes in to check on Kate. He wraps his stethoscope around his neck and sits down in a chair across from me. I wanted to be invited to her wedding. You will, I insist, but he shakes his head. My heart beats a little faster. A punch bowl, that's what you can buy. A picture frame, you can make a toast. Sarah, Dr. Chance says, you need to say goodbye. Jessie spends 15 minutes in Kate's closed room and comes out looking for all the world like a bomb about to explode. He runs through the halls of the pediatric ICU ward. I'll go, Brian says. He heads down the corridor in Jessie's direction. Anna sits with her back to the wall. She is angry, too. I'm not doing this. I crouch down next to her. There is nothing. Believe me. I'd rather make you do less. But if you don't, Anna, then one day you're going to wish you had. Belligerent, Anna walks into Kate's room, climbs onto a chair, climbs onto a chair, Kate's chest rises and falls, the work of the respirator. All the fight goes out of Anna as she reaches out to touch her sister's cheek.
Can she hear me? Absolutely, I answer. More for myself than for her. I won't go to Minnesota, Anna whispers. I won't ever go anywhere. She leans close. Wake up, Kate. We both hold our breath, but nothing happens. I have never never understood why it is called losing a child. No parent is that careless. We all know exactly where our sons and daughters are. We just don't necessarily want them to be there. Brian and Kate and I are a circuit. We sit on each side of the bed and hold each other's hands, and one of hers. You were right, I tell him. We should have taken her home. Brian shakes his head. If we hadn't tried the arsenic, we'd spend the rest of our lives asking why not. He brushes back the pale hair that surrounds Kate's face. She's such a good girl. She's always done what you ask her to. I nod, unable to speak. That's why she's hanging on, you know? She wants your permission to leave. He bends down to Kate, crying so hard he could not catch his breath. I put my hand on his head. We are not the first parents to lose a child. But we are the first parents to lose our child. And that makes all the difference. When Brian falls asleep, draped over the foot of the bed, I take Kate's scarred hand between both of mine. I trace the ovals of her nails and remember the first time I painted them, when Brian couldn't believe I'd do that to a one-year-old. Now, twelve years later, I turn over her palm and wish I knew how to read it, or better yet, how to edit the lifeline. I pull my chair closer to the hospital bed. Do you remember the summer we signed you up for camp? And the night before you left, you said you changed your mind and wanted to stay home. I told you to get a seat on the left side of the bus, so that when it pulled away, you'd be able to look back and see me there, waiting for you. I press her hand against my cheek, hard enough to leave a mark. You get that same seat in heaven, one where you can watch me, watching you. I bury my face in the blankets and tell this daughter of mine how much I love her. I squeeze her hand one last time, only to feel the slightest pulse, the tiniest grasp, the smallest clutch of Kate's fingers as she claws her way back to this world. Anna, here's my question. What age are you when you when you're in heaven? I mean, if it's heaven, you should be at your beauty queen best. And I doubt that all the people who die of old age are wandering around toothless and bald. It opens up a whole additional realm of questions, too. If you hang yourself, do you walk around all gross and blue, with your tongue spitting out of your mouth? If you are killed in a war, do you spend eternity minus the leg that, go, that got blown up by a mine? I figure that maybe you get a choice. You fill out the application form that asks if you want a star view or a cloud view, if you like chicken or fish or mana for dinner, what age you'd like to be seen as by everyone else. Like me, for example, I might pick 17, in the hopes I grow boobs by then. And even if I'm a pruny centigenarian by the time I die, in heaven I'd be young and pretty. Once at a dinner party, I heard my father say that even though he was old, 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 in his heart he was 21. So maybe there is a place in your life to wear out like a rut, or even better, like the soft spot on the couch. And no matter what else happens to you, you come back to that. The problem, I suppose, is that everyone's different. What happens in heaven when all these people are trying to find each other after so many years spent apart? 
Say that you die and start looking around for your husband, who died five years ago. What if you're picturing him at 70, but he hit his groove at 16 and is wandering around suave as can be? Or what if you're Kate, and you die at 16, but in heaven you choose to look 35, an age you never got to be here on earth? How would anyone ever be able to find you? Campbell calls my father at the station when we're having lunch, and says that opposing counsel wants to talk about the case. Which is a really stupid way to put it, since we all know he's talking about my mother. He says we have to meet at 3 o'clock in his office, no matter that it's Sunday. I sit on the floor with the judge's head in my lap. Campbell is so busy, he doesn't even tell me not to do it. My mother arrives right on the dot and, since Carrie the secretary is off today, walks in by herself. She has made a special effort to pull her hair back into a neat bun. She's put on some makeup. But unlike Campbell, who wears this room like an overcoat he can shrug on and off, my mom looks completely out of place in a law firm. It is hard to believe that my mother used to do this for a living. I guess she used to be someone else, too. I suppose we all were. Hello, she says quietly. Miss Fitzgerald, Campbell replies. Ice. My mother's eyes move from my father, at the conference table, to me, on the floor. On the floor. Hi. She says again. She steps forward, like she is going to hug me, but she stops. You called this meeting, counselor, Campbell prompts. My mother sits down. I know. I was... Well, I'm hoping that we can clear this up. I want us to make a decision. Together. Campbell wraps his fingers on the table. Are you offering us a deal? He makes it sound so businesslike. My mother blinks at him. Yes, I guess I am. She turns her chair toward me, as if only the two of us are in the room. Anna, I know how much you've done for Kate. I also know she doesn't have many chances left, but she might have this one. My client doesn't need coercing. It's okay, Campbell, I say. Let her talk. If the cancer comes back, if this kidney transplant doesn't work, if things don't wind up the way we all wish they would be, they would for Kate. Well, I will never ask you to help your sister again. But Anna, will you do this one last thing? By now, she looks very tiny, even smaller than me. It's if I'm the parent and she is the child. I wonder how this optical illusion took place when neither of us has moved. I glance at my father, but he's gone bolder still, and he seems to be doing everything he can to follow the grain of wood in the conference table instead of getting involved. Are you indicating that if my client willingly donates a kidney, then she will be absolved of all other medical procedures that may be necessary in the future to prolong Kate's life? Campbell clarifies. My mother takes a deep breath. Yes. We need, of course, to discuss it. When I was seven, Jesse went out of his way to make sure I wasn't stupid enough to believe in Santa. It's mom and dad, he explained, and I fought him every step of the way. I decided to test the, the, the theory, so that Christmas I wrote to Santa and asked for a hamster, which is what I wanted most in the world. I mailed the letter myself to the, in the school secretary's mailbox, and I steadfastly did not tell my parents, although I dropped other hints about toys I hoped for that year. On Christmas morning, I got the sled and the computer game and the tie-dyed comforter I had mentioned to my mother, but I did not get the hamster because she didn't know about it. 
I learned two things that that year, that neither Santa nor my parents were what I wanted them to be. Maybe Campbell thinks this is about the law, but really, it's about my mother. I get up from the floor and fly into her arms, which are a little like this, that spot in life I was talking about before. So familiar that you slide right back to the place where you fit. It makes my throat hurt, and all those tears I've been saving come out of their hiding place. Oh, Anna, she cries into my hair. Thank God. Thank God. I hug her twice as tight as I would normally, trying to hold on to this moment the same way I like to paint the slanted light of summer on the back wall of my brain, a mural to stare at during the winter. I put my lips right up to her ear, and even as I speak, I wish I wasn't. I can't. My mother's body goes stiff. She pulls away from me, stares at my face, then she pushes a smile onto her lips that is broken in several spots. She touches the crown of my head. That's it. She stands up, straightens her jacket, and walks out of the office. Campbell gets out of his seat, too. He crouches down in front of me, in the place where my mother was. Eye to eye, he looks more serious than I have ever seen him look. Anna, he says, is this really what you want? I open my mouth and find an answer. Okay, gonna take a small break because I'm getting a bit headachy. Okay, so this is either, you won't notice, but I'm saying this for myself. This is either a separate file for the same episode, so I don't know if this will be like choppy when it posts, but if it is, that's why. Or I have recorded with Vokaroo. Because I tried using this other site, Podcastle, because I accidentally ended my recording before I meant to. And then I downloaded that so I can still have it and not lose another 45 minutes of my life. So, I have that. And I tried to use Podcastle to just, like, put that recording, like, that file there and continue from that point. But then the extra time that I had spent recording there, which wasn't outrageously long, so I'm I'm fine, got deleted. So now I don't want to risk that happening again because Vokaroo lets you pause and then I can close my computer safely and I know the recording will still be there. But with Podcastle, I paused the recording, I closed my laptop, I went and did something else, I came back, it was gone. So, I don't want to risk that. So, I sort of forgot where I was, so I just went back and listened to that recording, so I am in the right spot now. And, oh boy, I would have been so upset, because I forgot exactly where, but you know where it is, because you heard it already. That little tangent I made about giving full, proper credit to the authors that I'm reading books To the authors of the books I'm reading. That's how I meant to phrase that. And I would have been so upset if that was lost. Because, like, that was just off the top of my head. I didn't script that or anything. That was just something I needed to address. I found a great moment to address it, and then I did. And it was a bit rambly, but I like what I said in that little tangent. So I would have been so upset 
if that was gone. <laughs> like, so I'm glad it's still there. Um, but that's all I meant to say. Like, if it was gone, then I probably would have had to, like, just shove it in there somewhere, find a place to put it. Like, how I'm talking right now at the beginning of the second half, which, like, doesn't make any sense to you, but it will make sense to me, okay? And, like, I don't know. I was thinking of opening an Instagram for this, you know? Because, like... There's a lot of people on Instagram, and I feel like it could help get publicity to the podcast. And, like, if people cared enough, they could know what I'm reading personally, and have, like, advanced things for the next month's book. And, like, if I get enough followers, and I can do polls. And then for, like, other years, then I could, like, do little thingies. I don't know. That's something I'll consider. Maybe talk with some of my friends about. But right now, we've got a book to read. Julia. Do you think I like Campbell because he's an asshole? I ask my sister. Or in spite of it? Izzy shushes me from the couch. She is watching The Way We Were, a movie she's seen 20,000 times. It is on her list of movies you cannot click past which also includes Pretty Woman, Ghost, and Dirty Dancing. I always thought Dirty Dancing was like a series. Is it both? 420. (laughs) Wait, that won't make sense. Okay, so where I'm recording right now, I'm 4 minutes 20 seconds into this second half recording. So I just said that because I looked at the time, and I didn't think. Ugh. That will make no sense to anyone now. No. Anyway, dirty dancing series. If any of y'all listening know and you like know me and you can tell me if it's a movie or a series, or I can just look it up. That's a viable option. Now that my rat brain is focused on this, I need to look it up. So is dirty dancing a series. Dirty Dancing is an American comedy drama television series that ran for 11 episodes on CBS from October 29, 1988 until January 14, 1989. It was based on the film Dirty Dancing, but had none of the original cast or crew. So it's both. Okay. Now that I have the unnecessary knowledge, I shall continue. If you make me miss the end, Julia, I'll kill you. See ya, Katie, I quote for her. See ya, Hubble. She throws a couch pillow at me and wipes her eyes as the theme music swells. Barbara Strayson, Izzy says, is the bomb. I thought that was a gay men's stereotype. I look up over the table of papers I have been studying in preparation for tomorrow's hearing. This is the decision I will render to the judge, based on what is in Anna Fitzgerald's best interests. The problem is, it doesn't matter whether I side in her favor or against her. Either way, I will be ruining her life. I thought we were talking about Campbell, 
Izzy says. No, I was talking about Campbell. You were swooning. I've rubbed my temples. I thought you might be sympathetic. About Campbell Alexander? I'm not sympathetic. I'm apathetic. You're right. That is what kind of pathetic you are. Look, Julia, maybe it's hereditary, Izzy says. She gets up and starts rubbing the muscles of my neck. Maybe you've, maybe you have a gene that attracts you to absolute jerks. Then you have it too. Well, she laughs. Case in point. I want to hate him, you know, just for the record. Reaching over my shoulder, Izzy takes the coke I'm drinking and finishes it off. What happens to this being strictly professional? It is. There's just a very vocal minority opposition group in my mind wishing otherwise. Izzy sits back down on the couch. The problem, you know, is that you never forget your first one. And even if your brain's smart about it, your body's got the IQ of a fruit fly. It's just so easy with him, Is. It's like we're picking up where we left off. I already know everything I need to know about him, and he already knows everything he needs to about me. I look at her. Can you fall for someone because you're lazy? Why don't you just screw him and get it out of your system? Because, I say, as soon as it's over, that's one more piece of the past I won't be able to get rid of. I can fix you up with one of my friends, Izzy suggests. They all have vaginas. See, you're looking at the wrong stuff, Julia. You ought to be attracted to someone for what they've got inside them, not for the package it's presented in. Campbell Alexander may be gorgeous, but he's like marzipan frosting on a sardine. You think he's gorgeous? Izzy rolls her eyes. You, she says, are doomed. When the doorbell rings, Izzy goes to look through the peephole. Speak of the devil. It's Campbell? I whisper. Tell him I'm not here. Izzy opens the door just a few inches. Julia says she's not here. I'm going to kill you, I mutter, and walk up behind her. Pushing her out of the way, I undo the chain and let Campbell and his dog inside. The reception here just keeps getting warmer and fuzzier, he says. I cross my arms. What do you want? I'm working. Good. Sarah Fitzgerald just offered us a plea bargain. Come out to dinner with me and I'll tell you all about it. I am not going out to dinner with you, I tell him. Actually, you are, he shrugs. I know you, and eventually you're going to give in because even more than you don't want to be with me, you want to know what Anna's mother said. Can't we just cut to the chase? Izzy starts laughing. He does know you, Julia. If you don't go willingly, Campbell adds, I have no problem using brute force, although it's going to be considerably more difficult for you to cut, off, to cut your filet mignon if your hands are tied together. I turn to my sister. Do something, please? She waves at me. See ya, Katie. See ya, Hubble, Campbell replies. Great movie. Izzy looks at him, considering. Maybe there's hope, she says. Rule number one, I tell him. We talk about the trial and nothing but the trial. So help me God, Campbell adds. And may I just say you look beautiful. See, you've already broken the rule. 
He pulls into a parking lot near the water and cuts the engine. Then he gets out of the car and comes around to my side to help me out. I look around, but I don't see anything resembling a restaurant. Sorry, my screen was going dark. We are at a marina filled with sailboats and yachts. There are honey-colored decks tanning in the late sun. Take off your sneakers, Campbell says. No. For God's sake, Julia, this isn't the Victorian age. I'm not going to attack you because I see your ankle. Just do it, will you? Why? Because right now you've got an enormous pull up your ass, and this is the only G-rated way I can think of to make you relax. He pulls off his own deck shoes and sinks his feet into the grass, growing along the edge of the parking lot. Ah, he's... <laughs> I can never read that right. I can never read that in a way that doesn't make me cackle. <laughs> Fucking ah! <laughs> this is what happened my first read through, the first one, and it's gonna happen every time if I have to do this again. I swear to God. <laughs> It's, like, not as bad, but... <laughs> he says, and he spreads his... He spreads... <laughs> he says, and he, and he spreads his arms wide. Come on, Jewel. Carpe diem. Summer's almost over. Better enjoy it while you can. What about the plea bargain? What Sarah said is going to remain the same whether or not you go barefoot. I still do not know if he's taken on this case because he's a glory hound, because he wants the PR, or if he simply wanted to help Anna. I want to believe the latter, idiot that I am. Campbell waits patiently, the dog at his side. Finally, I untie my sneakers and peel off my socks. I step out onto the strip of lawn. Summertime, I think, is a collective unconscious. We all remember the notes that made up the song of the ice cream man. We all know what it feels like to brand our thighs on a playground slide that's heated up like a knife in a fire. We all have lain on our backs with our eyes closed and our hearts beating across the surface of our lids, hoping that this day will stretch just a little longer than the last one, when in fact it's all going in the, op in the other direction. Campbell sits down on the grass. What's rule number two? That I get to make up all the rules, I say. When he smiles, when he smiles at me, I'm lost. Last night, seven the bartenders slipped a martini into my waiting hand and asked me what I was hiding from. I took a sip before I answered and reminded myself why I hate martinis. They're straight bitter alcohol, which of course is the point, but they also taste that way, which is always somehow disappointing. I'm not hiding, I told him. I'm here, aren't I? It was early at the bar, just dinner time. I stopped in on my way back from the fire station, where I'd been with Anna. Two guys were making out in a booth in the corner. One lone man was sitting at the other end of the bar. Can we change the channel? He gestured toward the TV, which was broadcasting the evening news. Jennings is so much hotter than Brokaw. Seven flicked the remote, then turned back to me. You're not hiding, but you're hiding, but you're sitting in a gay bar at dinner time. You're not hiding, but you're wearing that suit like it's armor. 
Well, I'd definitely take fashion advice from a guy with a pierced tongue. Seven lifted a brow. One more martini, and I could convince you to go see my man Johnston and get your own done. You can take the pink hair dye out of the girl, but you never lose those roots. I took another sip of the martini. You don't know me. At the end of the bar, the other customer lifted his face to Peter Jennings and smiled. Maybe, Seven said, but neither do you. Okay, that one, the interpretation of that is consistently getting me. Because when I first read it, I took it as Seven saying right back to Julia that she didn't know him either. But now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's Seven saying that Julia doesn't even know herself at that point. Because Seven doesn't really talk about himself much, so it's fairly obvious that Julia wouldn't know him. And it wouldn't be significant to know. However, it is significant to know for us, for the author to have included this, that Julia may not even know herself at this point from the conflicted feelings she's going through with everything. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading into it too much like some stereotypical English teachers do with basic sentences like John ate spaghetti or Albert's favorite color was purple. Stuff like that. I, I know the names probably aren't right, but it's those kind of sentences that stereotypically English teachers read way too far into. Um, so I'll just continue after placing that thought in your mind. Dinner turns out to be bread and cheese. Well, a baguette and gruyere. On board a 30-foot sailboat. Campbell rolls up his pants like a castaway and sets the rigging and hauls line and catches the wind until we are so far away from the shore of Providence that it is only a line of color, a distant jeweled necklace. After a while, when it becomes clear to me that any information Campbell feels like providing me with won't be doled out until after dessert, I give in. I lie on my back with my arm doled out, wait, there we are, with my arm draped over the sleeping dog. I watch the sail, loose now, flap like the great white wing of a pelican. Campbell comes up from below decks, where he's been hunting down a corkscrew, and holds out two glasses of red wine. He sits down on the other side of Judge and scratches behind the German shepherd's ears. You ever think about being an animal? Figuratively? Or literally? Rhetorically, he says, if I hadn't drawn that human card. I think about this for a while. Is this a trick question? Like, if I say killer whale, you're going to tell me that it, that means I'm a ruthless, cold-blooded, bottom-feeder fish? They're mammals, Campbell says. And no, it's just a simple, making polite conversation inquiry. I turn my head. What would you be? I ask you first. Well, a bird is out of the question. I'm too scared of heights. I don't think I have the right attitude to be a cat, and I'm too much of a loner to function in a pack, like a wolf or a dog. I think of saying something like Tarsier just to throw him off, 
just to show off, but then he'll ask what the hell that is, and I can't remember if it is a rodent or a lizard. A goose, I decide. Wait, now I've read this a few times. I need to know what a tarsier is. Tarsier. Oh, it's a silly! Oh! Oh, it's so funny looking! <laughs> oh! Why are Tarsiers suicidal? I need a break. So, currently, I am recording this on Cinco de Mayo. Well, this is like a multi-day process, again. But today, I'm recording on Cinco de Mayo. So, Feliz Cinco de Mayo. Um, I don't know if it was planned that I learned about Latino Americans and, like, the Mexican-American movement and all of that with Cesar Chavez. I didn't really take too many notes because I was tired. But, well, I took all the notes that we were expected to take. But, like, it didn't stick in my memory because I was tired. But, um, this probably won't, I probably won't be done recording this episode today. But, You'll be hearing it late, but I'm saying it on time, so don't flame me or whatever. Feliz Cinco de Mayo. I think this, you know, I'm gonna do a quick lookup of, like, wait. There I am. Of, like, Cinco de Mayo, like, the meaning. So. Okay, so looked it up real quick. Cinco de Mayo is a yearly celebration held on May 5th, which commemorates the anniversary of Mexico's victory over the Second French Empire at the Battle of Puebla in 1862, led by General Ignacio. 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 I didn't. That's where I was going wrong. I didn't want the nya. I wanted the na. Ignacio Zaragoza. Okay. Related to El Dia de la Batalla, Batalla de Puebla. My Spanish isn't that good because I am Puerto Rican. Well, mi abuela and abuelo, they were first generation immigrants. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. My memory isn't the best. They were first generation immigrants. But then, mi tía, mi tío, and mi papá. I don't know why I said dad Spanish, because I always call him dad or pops or some weird shit. They were second generation, and mi abuela y abuelo, they did their best to inverse them in Hispanic culture. But then when it came to me, it was just my part of it. Because mi tía married a Hispanic man, and mi tío married a Hispanic woman, so they're... So their bloodlines were, like, full Hispanic culture. But then my dad married my white mom. And my sister 
used to live in like the city where majority of the family lives. I'm avoiding giving distinct locations to avoid doxing myself. And it would be split between the white family and the Hispanic family watching her. And mi tia would speak Spanish around her. So then my sister would speak Spanish around my grandma. That's how you... If you don't know how I address my family, if it's Spanish, they're the Spanish family. Even if it's English, then it's the English family. So, it's pretty easy to tell. I don't know why I felt the need to explain, but... My sister would get watched by my tias and then go over to my grandma and say some Spanish. And then my grandma was like, what is she saying? I can't tell what she's saying. She... My sister was saying dame, like give me, and my grandma thought she was saying Dante, and my grandma was like, who's Dante? So then my mom was like, can we just stop speaking Spanish around her so that my family doesn't get confused? And that was step one of the whitewashing process. And from then, I know it wasn't intentional, but it's just gone downhill to the point where the only things I fully know of my Spanish culture that, like, I've learned from the family are empanadas, Spanish rice, and the fact that we speak Spanish, but I can't speak Spanish. So sometimes there will be Spanish convos right in front of me and I'll have no clue what's happening. I'm, like, trying to teach myself Spanish right now because, like, it's just upsetting that unintentionally... An entire part of my culture was erased from my knowledge. To the point where, like, people will be having conversations about Hispanic history, and I'll have no clue what's going on, which is where the school system failed. Like, the school system failed everybody. Like, I can't speak for other cultures. But in my history classes, we're learning so little about other cultures, and we've always learned so little about other cultures. Like, it should not be a point where the only time we really go into Black History is Black History Month. And, like, there's so many cultures in the world that we, that we don't even touch on at all. That you have to immerse yourself in yourself. And it's sort of upsetting if you really think about it. Because so much has happened that helped change the school system for the better. But even then, it's not good enough. Because, oh my god, if you have been an ele elementary student in a Spanish class, you know how bad it is. Well, at least in my school, because every single year in elementary school Spanish, they'd be like, Hola, estudiantes. Buenos días. Yo soy señora or señor. And then they'd say their name. And then it would be like, today we're going to learn about colors. And then they'd tell you the colors like, okay, so green is verde, and red is rojo, and orange, <laughs> orange is naranja, and yellow is amarillo, and blue is azul, and purple, 
I hate to say it, but I forget what purple is. And pink is rosa. Rosa? I think it's rosa. I think I'm right. If I'm wrong, then I'm sorry. I'm trying my best. And white is blanca. And black is negro. <laughs> and then it'd be like, adios estudiantes. See you tomorrow. I think that's mañana. I think tomorrow is mañana. I don't know. And then we'd go in the next day and it would be like, hello students. Today we're going to learn about colors. Green is verde and red. <laughs> and that's how it would go. And, it <laughs> and then you'd come in the next year having learned the alphabet and the colors and family and like some Spanish countries. And you'd come in and it'd be day one. And you want to know what they'd say? Hola, estudiantes. Yo soy señora. Or señor, depending on gender. My Spanish teachers were always female. So it would be, yo soy señora. And then their last name. I'm not going to say my Spanish teacher's last name from every time. Because, you know. Welcome back to another year of school. Today we're going to learn about colors. Green is verde. <laughs> I don't, like, <laughs> like, they really did us like that, to the point where, like, they ruined Spanish as a language and learning it in school as a whole for me, to a point where I didn't want to do it no more, so I got into middle school and I took French, and man was my French teacher great, I loved French class, it was, it was so much different than Spanish class, and I just had a vendetta about learning Spanish for a bit. But then in my culinary class, we had a project about, like, making a food truck. Not an actual food truck. We didn't do that because we're, like, not at that level yet. And it was, like, a hypothetical food truck where you choose a country and, like, foods from that country. And we were in groups. So my group did Mexico, like, Mexican food, which a lot of groups did, actually. And that just, like, brought up in me how little I know about my Hispanic culture and, like, the tiniest things, like, food, I don't know a lot about. So, like, well, not tiniest, because food is a huge thing in culture. But, like, something that's so easy to teach to a child as food culture. Well, not easy, but, like, to immerse your child in. That's it. Something that's so easy to immerse your child in as, like, food culture. It's just you cook the food for them and tell them it's a Puerto Rican meal. That's it. That is it. That's all that had to be done. But they didn't do that. And I like how I got here from saying Feliz Cinco de Mayo, everyone. And then looking up Cinco de Mayo. I remember why I stopped yesterday. I stopped yesterday. I remember because I saw the tab open. I stopped yesterday because of the Tarsier. That hurt me. Oh my god. So I'm going to hurt you too. But I'm going to give you the chance to skip. So 30 seconds. This will only take 30 seconds starting now. 
so skip 30 seconds ahead if you don't want to hear. Um, Tarsiers are little cutesy animals. They're a little fuzzy. They have big eyes, and they get stressed in social situations, so they'll bang their head on walls, and they have thin skulls, so it'll break their skull, and they'll die because they got stressed out from people taking pictures of them, and that really hurt my soul, and that's almost time for me to say that, but now if you listen, you can suffer. Welcome back if you skipped ahead. Yeah, that was 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, I did that right. Welcome back if you skipped ahead. Good on you for not suffering. Like, whoever listened suffered with this knowledge, as I will forever suffer with- Well, it might have- it might- it might- I might forget at some point. But, like, as I shall suffer with this knowledge for a bit. Ugh. Well, I'll start with the book. Okay. Found where I left off. A goose, I decide. Campbell bursts out laughing. As in mother or silly? It is because they mate for life, but I would rather fall overboard than tell him this. What about you? But he doesn't answer me directly. When I asked Anna the same question, she told me she'd be a phoenix. The image of the mythical bird rising from the ashes glitters in my mind. They don't really exist. Campbell strokes the dog's head. She said that depends on whether or not there's someone who can see them. Then she looks up at me. Then he looks up at me. How do you see her, Julia? The wine I have been drinking suddenly tastes bitter. Was all this, the charm, the picnic, the sunset sail, engineered to tip my hand in his favor at tomorrow's trial? Whatever I recommend as guardian ad litem will weigh heavily in Judge DeSalvo's decision, and Campbell knows it. Until this moment, I had not realized that someone could break your heart twice along the very same fault lines. I'm not going to tell you what my decision is, I say stiffly. You can wait to hear it when you call me as a witness. I grab the anchor and try to reel it in. I'd like to go back now, please. Campbell yanked the line out of my hand. You already told me that you don't think it's in Anna's best interest to be a kidney donor for her sister. I also told you she's incapable of making that decision by herself. Her father moved her out of the house. He can be her mor- he can be her moral compass. And how long is that going to last? What about the next time? I'm furious at myself for falling for this, for agreeing to go out to dinner, for letting myself believe that Campbell might want to be with me rather than use me. Everything from his compliments on my looks to the wine sitting on the deck between us has been coldly calculated to help him win this case. Sarah Fitzgerald offered us a deal, Campbell says. She said if Anna donates the kidney, she will never ask her to do anything for her sister again. Anna turned it down. You know, I could have the judge throw you in jail for this. It's completely unethical to try to seduce me into changing my mind. (laughs) I'm not laughing over the book. I'm laughing over my mom yelling at my sister over the dog poop. (laughs) Okay, let's go. Seduce you? All I did was lay the cards on the table for you. I made your job easier. Oh, right. 
Forgive me, I say sarcastically. This isn't about you. This isn't about me writing about writing my report with a definite slant toward your client's petition. If you were an animal, Campbell, you know what you'd be? A toad. No, actually, you'd be a parasite on the belly of a toad. Something that takes what it needs without giving a single thing back. A vein throbs blue in his temple. Are you finished? Actually, I'm not. Is anything that comes out of your mouth ever honest? I did not lie to you. No? What's the dog for, Campbell? Jesus Christ, will you shut up already? Campbell says, and he pulls me into his arms and kisses me. His mouth moves like a silent story. He tastes like salt and wine. There is no moment of relearning, of adjusting the patterns of the past 15 years. Our bodies remember where to go. He licks my name along the course of my, of my throat. He presses himself so close to me that any hurt left on the surface between us spreads thin, becomes a binding instead of a boundary. When we break away to breathe again, Campbell stares at me. I'm still right, I whisper. It is the most natural thing in the world when Campbell pulls my old sweatshirt up over my head, works at the clasp of my bra, when he kneels before me with his head over my heart, when I feel the water rocking the whole of the boat, I think that maybe this is the place for us. Maybe there are entire worlds where there are no fences, where feeling bears you like a tide. Monday. How great a matter, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The New Testament, James 3.5. 3.5. Ignore my voice crack. Ignore it. Campbell. We sleep in the tiny cabin, moored to its slip. Tight quarters, but that hardly seems to matter. All night long, she fits herself around me. She snores, just a little. Her front tooth is crooked. Her eyelashes are as long as the nail of my thumb. These are the miniature that, that prove, more than anything, the difference between us now that 15 years have passed. When you're 17, you don't think about whose apartment you want to sleep in. When you're 17, you don't even see the pearl pink of her bra, the lace that arrows between her... Her legs. When you're 17, it's all about the now, not the after. What I had loved about Julia, there, I've said it now, was that she didn't need anyone. At Wheeler, even when she stood out with her pink hair and quilted army surplus jacket and combat boots, she did this without apology. It was a great irony that the very fact of a relationship with her would diminish her appeal, that the moment she came to love me back and depend on me as much as I depended on her, she would no longer be a truly independent spirit. No way in hell was I going to be the one to take that quality away from her. After Julia, there weren't all that many women, none whose names I took. I took the time to remember, anyway. It was far too complicated to, ma to maintain the facade. Instead, I chose the coward's rocky route of one-night stands. Out of necessity, medical and emotional, I have gotten rather skilled at being an escape artist. But there are half a dozen, but there are a half dozen times this past night that I had the opportunity to leave. While Julia was sleeping, I even considered how to do it. A note pinned to the pillow, a message scrawled on the deck with her cherry lipstick. And yet the urge to do this was nowhere near as strong as the need to wait just one more minute, one more hour. 
From the spot where he's where he's curled on the galley table, tight as a cinnamon bun, Je Judge raises his head. He whines a little, and I completely understand. Detangling myself from Julia's rich forest of hair, I slip out of the bed. She inches into the warm spot I've left behind. I swear, it makes me... I have now read this. This will now be my third time reading this. And I still cannot handle it. I still hate it. I hate this line so much. I swear, it makes me hard again. But instead of doing what comes naturally, that is, calling in sick with some Latin strain of smallpox and making the clerk of the court reschedule the hearing so that I can spend the day getting laid, I pull on my pants and go above deck. I want to make sure I'm at the courthouse before Anna and need to shower and change. I leave Julia the keys to my car. It's a short walk to my place. It's only when Judge and I are on our way home that I realize, unlike every other bloodshot morning that I have left a woman, I haven't fashioned some charming symbol of my exit for Julia, something to lessen the blow of abandonment upon waking. I wonder if this was an oversight, or if I have been waiting all this time for her to come back so that I can grow up. When Judge and I arrive at the Garrahee building for the hearing, we have to fight our way through the reporters who have lined up for the main event. They thrust microphones in my face and inadvertently step on Judge's paws. Anna will take one look at the, one look at walking this gauntlet and bolt. Inside the front door, I flag down Vern. Get us some security out here, will you? I tell him. They're going to eat the witnesses alive. Then I see Sarah Fitzgerald, already waiting. She is wearing a suit that most likely hasn't seen the outside of the plastic dry cleaner's bag for a decade, and her hair is pulled back severely into a barrette. She doesn't carry a briefcase, but a knapsack instead. Good morning, I say evenly. The, mo the door blows open and Brian enters, looking from Sarah to me. Where's Anna? Sarah takes a step forward. Didn't she come here with you? Oh my god, the voice cracks. Hang on. We need water and then I'm rereading that, 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 that. Because it was so bad. Sarah takes a step forward. Didn't she come here with you? She was already gone when I got back from a call at 5 a.m. She left a note and said she'd meet me here. He glances at the door, at the jackals on the other side. I bet she took off. Again, there is the sound of a seal being breached. Breach, there I am. And then Julia surfs into the courthouse on a crest of shouts and questions. She smooths back her hair, gets her bearings, then looks at me and loses them again. I'll find her, I say. Sarah bristles. No, I will. Julia looks at each of us. Find who? Anna is temporarily absent, I explain. Absent? Julia says. As in disappeared? Not at all. This isn't a lie, either. For Anna to have disappeared, she would have had to appear in the first place. I realize that I even know where I am headed, at the same moment that Sarah understands it, too. In that moment, she lets me take the lead. Julia grabs my arm as I am walking toward the door. She shoves my car keys into my hand. Now you do understand why this isn't going to work? 
I turned to her. Julia, listen, I want to talk about what's going on between us two, but this isn't the right time. I was talking about Anna, Cam- I was talking about Anna. Campbell, she's waffling. She couldn't even show up for her own court date. What does that say to you? That everyone gets scared, I answer finally. Fair warning for all of us. The shades to the hospital room are drawn, but that doesn't keep me from seeing the angel pallor of Kate Fitzgerald's face, the web of blue veins mapping out the last chance path of medication running under her skin. Curled up on the foot of the bed is Anna. At my command, Judge waits by the door. I crouch down. Anna, it's time to go. When the door to the hospital room opens, I'm expecting either Sarah Fitzgerald or a doctor with a crash cart. Instead, to my shock, Jesse stands on the threshold. Hey, he says, as if we are old friends. How did you get here? I almost ask, but realize I don't want to hear the answer. We're on our way to the courthouse. Need a lift? I ask dryly. No, thanks. I thought since everyone was going to be there, I'd stay here. His eyes do not waver from Kate. She looks like shit. What do you expect? Anna answers, awake now. She's dying. Again, I find myself staring at my client. I should know better than most that motivations are never what they seem to be, but I still cannot figure her out. We need to go. In the car, Anna rides shotgun while Judge takes a seat in the back. She starts telling me about some crazy precedent she found on the internet, where a guy in Montana in 1876 was legally prohibited from using the water from a river that originated on his brother's land, even though it meant all his crops would dry up. What are you doing? she asks, when I deliberately missed the turn to the courthouse. Instead, I pull over next to a park. A girl with a great ass jogs by, holding onto the leash of one of those frou-frou dogs that looks more like a car. Cat. We're- g- I said that line so smoothly. Can I give myself a round of applause for being able to get through that line without a pause? The past two times I have recorded this, I have had to stop right before great ass to cackle to myself, but I just went with it. I just went along and read the words, and I was incredible, y'all. Sorry for needing a break for that. I'm just so proud of myself for being able to get through that without issue. Let's go me. I am incredible. I'm magnificent. Never the same. Totally unique. Whatever that audio is, I am that. Let's go, bitches. Fuck yeah. We're going to be late, Anna says after a moment. We already are. Look, Anna, what's going on here? She gives me one of those patent, patent, pat. I just hyped myself up so much, and now I can't read the word patented. Patented. Patented? Patented. Patent? Patented? Patented. Patent? Patent? Patent. Patent? 
patented, patented, patent, patent. <laughs> she gives me one of those patented. I need. I'm gonna pause this until I can say the word patented, patented, patented. She gives me one of those patented. She gives me one of those patented. Why can I not say it normal? I have to go patented. Patented. She gives me one of those patented. I did it. Let's do this line. Let's go, shoddy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying shoddy. Some people don't like being called shoddy. Shoddy is like a melody in my head. Yeah. Now you're going to suffer with that song going through your head now. You're going to suffer with that song going through your head now. Why did I do that? <laughs> she gives me one of those patented teenage looks, as if to say that there, that there is no way she and I descended from the same evolutionary chain. We're going to court. That's not what I'm asking. I want to know why we're going to court. Well, Campbell, I guess you cut the first day of law school, but that's pretty much what happens when someone files a lawsuit. I level my gaze on her, refusing to be bested. Anna, why are we going to court? She doesn't blink. Why do you have a service dog? I wrap my fingers on the steering wheel and look out over the park. A mother pushes a stroller now, across the same spot where the jogger was, oblivious to the kid who's trying his best to crawl out. A titter of birds explodes from a tree. I don't talk about this with anyone, I say. And not just anyone. I take a deep breath. A long time ago, I got sick and wound up with an ear infection. But for whatever reason, the medicine didn't work and I got nerve damage. I'm totally deaf in my left ear. Which isn't a, such a big deal in the long run, but there are certain but there are certain lifestyle issues I couldn't handle, like hearing a car approach, you know, but not being able to tell which what direction it's coming from, or having someone behind me at the grocery store who wants to pass by me in the aisle, but I don't hear her ask. I got trained with the judge so that in those circumstances he could be my be my ears. I hesitate. I don't like people feeling sorry for me. Hence, the big secret. Anna stares at me carefully. I came to your office because just for once, I wanted it to be about me instead of Kate. But this selfish confession saws out of her sideways. It just doesn't fit. This lawsuit has never been about Anna wanting her sister to die, but simply that she wants a chance to live. You're lying. Anna crosses her arms. Well, you lied first. You hear perfectly fine. And you're a brat, I start to laugh. You remind me of me. Is that supposed to be a good thing? Anna says. But she's smiling. <clears throat> Can my voice not die? Well, I'm trying to record. Wait. Wait. I know that rhythm. I know what that rhythm was. Hang on. I'm putting this book down so I can dance to myself, but you won't be able to see me. There's a place downtown where the freaks all come around. It's a hole in the wall. It's a dirty free-for-all. <laughs> okay.
Anna says, but she's smiling. The park is starting to get more crowded. An entire school group walks the path. Toddlers tether together like sled dog huskies, pulling two teachers in their wake. Someone zooms past on, on a racing bike, wearing the colors of the U.S. Postal Service. Come on, I'll treat you to breakfast. But we're late. I shrug. Who's counting? Judge DeSaldo is not a happy man. Anna's little field trip this morning has cost us an hour and a half. He glares at me when Judge and I hurry into his chambers for the, pre for the pre-trial conference. Your Honor, I apologize. We had a veterinary emergency. I feel, rather than see, Sarah's mouth drop open. That's not what opposing counsel indicated, the judge says. I look DeSalvo in, right in the eye. Well, it's what happened. Anna was kind enough to help me by keeping the dog calm while the sliver of glass was removed from his paw. The judge is dubious, but there are laws against handicap discrimination, and I'm playing them to the hilt. The last thing I want is for him to blame Anna for this delay. Is there any way of resolving this petition without a hearing? He asks. I'm afraid not. Anna may not be willing to share her secrets, which I can only respect, but she knows what, that she wants to go through with this. Okay, so I don't know if it's clear, but the I'm afraid not is what he says out loud. And then Anna may not be willing to share her secrets, which I can only respect, but she knows what she, that she wants to go through with this is not said out loud. It's not too clear to be read verbally, so clarified. The judge accepts my answer. Mrs. Fitzgerald, I take it you're still representing yourself? Yes, your honor, she says. All right, then. Judge DeSaldo glances at each of us. This is family court, counselors. In family court, and especially in hearings like these, I tend to personally relax the rules of evidence because I don't want a contentious hearing. I'm able to filter out what is admissible and what is not, and if there's something truly objectionable, I'll listen to the objection, but I would prefer that we get through this hearing quickly, without worrying about form. He looks directly at me. I want this to be as painless as possible for everyone involved. We move into the courtroom, one that's smaller than the criminal courts, but intimidating all the same. I swing into the lobby to pick Anna up along the way. As we cross through the doorway, she stops dead. She glances at the vast paneled walls, the rows of chairs, the imposing bench. Campbell, she whispers. I won't have to stand up there and talk, right? The fact is, the judge will most likely want to hear what she has to say. Even if Julia comes out in support of her petition, even if Brian says he will help Anna, Judge DeSaldo may want her to take the stand, but telling her this right now is only going to get her all worked up, and that's not any way to start a hearing. I think about the conversation in the car when Anna called me a liar. There are two reasons to not tell the truth, because lying will get you what you want, and because lying will keep someone from getting hurt. It's for both of these reasons that I give Anna this answer. Well, I say, I doubt it. Judge, I begin. I know it's not traditional practice, but there's something I'd like to say before we start calling witnesses. Judge DeSaldo sighs. Isn't this sort of standing on ceremony exactly what I ask you not to do? 
Your Honor, I wouldn't ask if I didn't think it was important. Make it quick, the judge says. I stand up and approach the bench. Your Honor, all of Anna Fitzgerald's life, has she has been medically treated for her sister's good, not for her own. No one doubts Sarah Fitzgerald's love for all her children or the decisions she's made that have prolonged Kate's life. But today we have to doubt the decisions she's made for this child. Okay, pause for commentary. No one doubts Sarah Fitzgerald's love for all of her for all her children. I doubt it. I seriously doubt her love for all her children. And this was not said in the second half, if I remember correctly. No, it was not. This came on later when I was talking. Yes? Yes, it did. But, um... I seriously doubt Sarah Fitzgerald is fit to be a mother. She was in the beginning, but after Kate's diagnosis, she lost the full capability to show complete compassion for every single one of her children. You know? Majority of her life prior to Kate's diagnosis was happy, perfect family, love for both children. And then after Kate's diagnosis, majority of her focus went to Kate, went away from Jesse, who was now seen as the problem child or the rebel of the family. And Anna was conceived for the purpose of curing Kate's cancer or trying to. Um, and it's doubtable that Sarah Fitzgerald can properly love her children when she's not caring for them properly, you know? Because in a lot of situations, people will say they love you and stuff, but from everything they do, it's hard to believe that genuinely they do love you. Like, I know this is a very tough thing to say. It may be controversial. Controversial. Maybe I'm about to get flamed on Twitter, which I can't even get access to. So if you're flaming me on Twitter, give up. I can't witness it. You can't hurt me if I can't witness it. <laughs> but, um... What was I saying? Sarah Fitzgerald's left for her children condition. There we go. A lot of people can do messed up things. Like, this is an extreme that isn't happening in this book, but it's just the only example I can come to. In an abusive relationship where it's psychologically abusive or emotionally, then... They'll basically gaslight you into believing they're the only person who can love you and who does love you and will ever love you so that you stick around. But they don't actually love you. You know, that's what's happening there. And it's not an abusive situation here. I'm thinking maybe more like neglectful towards Jesse. I think the neglect is, like, completely intentional. Like, not an, oh no, my son who I forgot about because I was so hyper-focused on curing my sick daughter. It's more, oh, my problem child's son. 
it's like that kind of situation. And it started unintentionally, but then it got intentional, you know? Like, a lot of things happen unintentionally, but then they get intentional later on. But, like, it really sucks that they're just trying to throw in your face. Sarah definitely loves her children equally, because that's not what's being demonstrated. And I guess that's probably to, like, make you think about it more. Which is excellent if that's the intention. To, like, make you think more about it. But if not, then the author maybe made a mistake in consideration of her characters and what needs to be said in problems. But I I love Jodi Picoult's book. I love this book. I love this book by Jodi Picoult, which I already went on a ramble about earlier. So I'm going to live in that little fantasy land where it's intentional that they're pushing in your face, that Sarah definitely loves her children equally, but then there's all these contradictions from other people going on at the same time. You know? Because that's excellent writing right there. And now I'll pick up the book again and keep going. I turn and see Julia watching me carefully, and suddenly I remember that old ethics assignment and I and know what I have to say. You might remember the recent case of the firefighters in Worcester, Massachusetts, who were killed in a blaze started by a homeless woman. She knew the fire had started and she left the building, but she never called 911 because she thought she might get into trouble. Six men died that night, and yet the state couldn't hold this woman responsible, because in America, even if the consequences are tragic, you are not responsible for someone else's safety. You aren't obligated to help anyone in distress. Not if you are the one who started the fire. Not if you are a passerby to a car wreck. Not if you are a perfectly matched donor. I look at Julia again. We're here today because there's a difference in our system of justice between, between what's legal and what's moral. Sometimes it's easy to tell them apart, but every now and then, especially when they rub against each other, right sometimes looks like wrong and wrong sometimes looks like right. I walk back to my seat and stand in front of it. We're here today, I finish, so that this court can help us all see a little more clearly. My first witness is opposing counsel. I watch Sarah walk to the stand unsteadily a sailor getting her sea legs again. She manages to get herself into the sea and be sworn in without ever breaking her gaze away from Anna. Judge, I'd like permission to treat Mrs. Fitzgerald as a hostile witness. The judge frowns. Mr. Alexander, I truly would hope that both you and Mrs. Fitzgerald can stand to be civilized here. Uh, here we are. Understood, Your Honor. I walk toward Sarah. Can you state your name? She lifts her chin a frac fraction. Sarah Crofton Fitzgerald. You are the mother of the minor child Anna Fitzgerald. Yes, and also of Kate and Jesse. Isn't it true that your daughter Kate was diagnosed with acute promylo promylocytic leukemia at, at age two? That's right. 
At that time, did you and your husband decide to conceive a child who would be genetically programmed to be an organ donor for Kate so that she could be cured? Sarah's face hardens. Not the words I would choose, but that was the story behind Anna's conception, yes. We were planning to use Anna's umbilical cord, cord blood for a transplant. Why didn't you try to find an unrelated donor? It's much more dangerous. The risk of mortality would have been far higher with someone who wasn't related to Kate. So how old was Anna when she first donated an organ or tissue to her sister? Kate had the transplant a month after Anna was born. I shake my head. I didn't ask when Kate received it. I asked when Anna donated it. The cord blood was taken from Anna moments after birth. Isn't that right? Yes, Sarah says. But Anna wasn't even aware of it. How old was Anna the next time she donated some body part to Kate? Sarah winces, just as I have expected. She was five when she gave donor lymphocytes. What does that involve? Uh, drawing blood from the crooks of her arms. Did Anna agree to let you put a needle in her arm? She was five years old, Sarah answers. Did you ask her if you could put a needle in her arm? I asked her to help her sister. Isn't it true that someone had to physically hold Anna down to get the needle in her arm? Sarah looks at Anna, closes her eyes. Yes. Do you call that voluntary participation, Mrs. Fitzgerald? From the corner of my eye, I can see Judge DeSalvo's brows draw together. The first time you took lymphocytes from Anna, were there any side effects? She had some bruising, some tenderness. How long was it before you took blood again? A month. Did she have to be held down that time too? Yes, but what were her side effects then? The same. Sarah shakes her head. You don't understand. It wasn't like I didn't see what was happening to Anna. Every time she underwent a procedure, it doesn't matter which of your children you see in that situation. Every single time, it breaks you apart. And yet, Mrs. Fitzgerald, you managed to get past that sentiment, I say, because you took blood from Anna a third time. It took that long to get all the lymphocytes, Sarah says. It's not an exact procedure. How old was Anna the next time she had to undergo medical treatment for her sister's well-being? When Kate was nine, she got a raging infection and, again... That's not what I asked. I want to know what happened to Anna when she was six. She donated granulocytes to fight Kate's infection. It's a process a lot like lymphocyte donation. Another needle stick? That's right. Did you ask her if she was willing to donate the granulocytes? Sarah doesn't answer. Mrs. Fitzgerald? The judge prompts. She turns toward her daughter, pleading. Anna, you know we never did any of these things to hurt you. It hurt all of us. If you got the bruises on the outside, then we got them on the inside. Mrs. Fitzgerald, I step between her and Anna. Did you ask her? Please don't do this, Sarah says. We all know, we all know the history. I'll stipulate to whatever it is you're trying to do in the process of crucifying me. I'd rather just get this part over with. Because it's hard to hear it hashed out again, isn't it? 
I know I'm walking a fine line, but behind me there is Anna, and I want her to know that someone here is willing to go the distance for her. Added up like this, it doesn't seem quite so innocuous, does it? Hang on, I need to turn my light on. It's getting dark outside and it's hard to see the book. Let there be light, I say, as you can't see. Hang on, gotta drink some water. Mr. Alexander, what is the point of this? Judge DeSalvo says. I am well aware of the number of procedures Anna's undergone. Because we have Kate's medical history, Your Honor, not Anna's. Judge DeSalvo looks between us. Be brief, Counselor. I turn to Sarah. Bone marrow, she says woodenly, before I can ask the question. She was put under general anesthesia because she was so young, and needles were put into the crests of her hips to draw out the marrow. Was it one needle, needle stick, like the other procedures? No, Sarah says quietly. It was about 15. Into the bone? Yes. What were the side effects for Anna this time around? She had some pain and was given some anal analgesics? Eh. So this time, Anna had to be hospitalized overnight, and she needed medication herself. There I am. Sarah takes a moment to compose herself. I was told that donating marrow isn't considered a particularly invasive procedure for a donor. Maybe I was just waiting to hear those, hear those words. There I am. Hear those words. Maybe I needed to hear them at the time at that time, and maybe I was not thinking as much of Anna as I should have been, because I was so focused on Kate, but I know beyond a doubt that, like everyone else in our family, Anna wanted nothing more than for her sister to be cured. Well, sure, I reply, so that you'd stop sticking needles in her. Enough, Mr. Alexander, Judge DeSalvo interjects. Wait, Sarah interrupts. I have something to say. She turns to me. You think you can lay it all out in words, black and white, as if it's that easy. But you only represent one of my daughters, Mr. Alexander, and only in this courtroom. I represent both of them equally, everywhere, every place. I love both of them equally, everywhere, every place. But you admitted that you've always considered Kate's health, not Anna's, in making these choices, I point out. So how can you claim to love both of them equally? How can you say that you haven't been favoring one child in your decisions? Aren't you asking me to do that very thing? Sarah asks. Only this time to favor the other child? Okay, in my opinion, that's really not fair of Sarah to say. Because, like, she's the mother. She's dealing with, like, a lot of shit. But she's older. And she's better at handling her emotions. And she's really not considering, in the whole, how much this can be affecting all of her kids. Because Kate is missing out on having a proper childhood. 
She's in the hospital constantly. She can't go to school. She, her boyfriend, wait, that didn't happen yet, never mind. Like, so much has happened to Kate. And then Anna, she's gone through several procedures. Her sister is dying. Her parents don't seem to support her emotions. And then Jesse is an arsonist. Probably an alcoholic and a drug addict, if you think about it. Like, minorly, in a way. Is consistently ignored by his parents. And then Brian, also an adult, also working through this. But more, like, able to handle it and try his best to support his kids. But, like... It's such a shitty situation. And I personally think that maybe Sarah Fitzgerald should have her child rights revoked. Spilling some tea. Some genuine opinions. I took off my glasses and you can't even see me. I took off my glasses for a bit and you can't even see me. You know, it's almost 8pm. I should get some dinner. So be back in a bit. Bye-bye. I am back from my dinner break. I made myself some eggs and put them on top of chips. Because why the hell not? Live your best life. Anna. When you are a kid, you have your own language. And unlike French or Spanish or whatever you start learning in fourth grade, this one you're born with and eventually lose. Everyone under the age of seven is fluent in if-speak. Go hang around with someone under three feet tall and you'll see. What if a giant funnel-web spider crawled out of that hole over your head and bit you on the neck? What if the only antidote for venom was locked up in a, in a vault on the top of a mountain? What if you lived through the bite but could only move your eyelids and blink out an alphabet? It doesn't really matter how far you go. The point is that it's a world of possibility. Kids think with their brains cracked wide open... Becoming an adult, I've decided, is only a slow sh sewing shut. During the first recess, Campbell takes me to a conference room for privacy and buys me a Coke that isn't cold. So, he says, what do you think so far? Being in the courtroom is weird. It's like I've turned into a ghost. I can catch what's going on, but even if I felt like speaking, no one would be able to hear me. Add to that the very bizarre way I have to listen to everyone talk about my life as if they can't see me sitting right there, and you've landed in my surreal, surreal little corner of Earth. She wasn't saying that, if you couldn't tell. Clarification. Campbell pops open his 7-Up and sits across from me. He, he pours a little into a paper cup for Judge, and then takes a good long drink. Comments, he says. Questions? Unadulterated praise for my skillful litigation? I shrug. It's not like I expected. What do you mean? I guess I figured when it started, I'd know for sure that I was doing the right thing. But when my mom was up there and you were asking her all those questions, I glanced up at him. The part about it not being simple. She's right. What if I was the one- Oh, she's not speaking anymore. Clarifying. What if I was the one who was sick? 
What if Kate had been asked to do what I'd done? What if one of these days some marrow or blood or whatever actually worked, and that was the end? What if I could look back on all this one day and feel good about what I did, instead of feeling guilty? What if the judge doesn't think he, think I'm right? What if he does? I can't answer a single one of these, which is how I know that I'm re that whether I'm ready or not, I'm growing up. Anna, Campbell gets gets up and comes around to my side of the table. Now is not the time to start changing your mind. I'm not changing my mind. I rolled a can between my palms. I think I'm just saying that even if we win, we don't. When I was 12, I start no longer speaking. Clarification. When I was 12, I started babysitting for twins who lived down the street. They're only six, and they don't like the dark, so I usually wind up sitting between them on a stool that's shaped like the stubby foot of an elephant, toenails and all. It never fails to amaze me how quickly a kid can shut off an energy switch. They'll be climbing the curtains and bam, five minutes later, they're conked out. Was I ever like that? I can't remember, and it makes me feel ancient. Every now and then, one of the twins will fall asleep before the other. Anna? The other one. Anna? His brother will say. How many years till I can drive? Ten, I tell him. How many years can till you can drive? Three. Then the talk will split off, split off like the spokes of a spider web. What kind of car will I buy? What will I be when I grow up? Does it suck to get homework every night in middle school? It's totally a ploy to stay up a little bit later. Sometimes I fall for it. Mostly I just make him go to sleep. See, I get a round hollow spot in my belly knowing I could tell him what's coming, but also knowing it would come out sounding like a warning. The second witness Campbell calls is Dr. Bergen, the head of the Medical Ethics Committee at Providence Hospital. He has salt and pepper hair and a face dented in like a potato. He is smaller than you'd expect, too, given the fact that it takes him just short of a millennium to recite his credentials. Dr. Bergen, Campbell starts, what the, what's an ethics committee? A diverse group of doctors, RNs, clergy, ethicists, and scientists who are assigned to review individual cases to protect patients' rights. In Western bioethics, there are six principles we try to follow. He ticks them off on his fingers. Autonomy, or the idea that any patient over eight, sorry, scream was dimming, over age 18 has the right to refuse treatment. Veracity, which is basically informed consent. Fidelity, that is, a healthcare provider fulfilling his duties. Benef beneficence, beneficence, there we go, or doing what's in the best interests of the patient. Non-maleficence. When you can no longer do good, you shouldn't do harm, like performing major surgery on a terminal patient who's 102 years old. And finally, justice, that no patient should be discriminated against in receiving treatment. What does an ethics committee do? Generally, we're called to convene when there's a discrepancy about patient care. For example, if a physician feels it's in the patient's best interests to go on with extraordinary measures, and the family doesn't, or vice versa. So you don't see every case that passes through a hospital? No, only when there are complaints or if the attending physician asks for a consultation. We review the situation and make recommendations. Not decisions? No, Dr. Bergen says. What if the patient complaining is a minor? Campbell asks. 
Consent isn't necessary until age 13. We rely on parents to make informed choices for their children until that point. What if they can't? He blinks. You mean if they're not physically present? No. I mean if there's another agenda they're adhering to that in some way keeps them from making choices in the best interests of that child. My mother stands up. Objection, she says. He's speculating. Sustained, Judge DeSaldo replies. Without missing a beat, Campbell turns back to his witness. Do parents control their children's health care decisions until age 18? Well, I could answer that. Parents control everything, unless you're, Je- you're like Jesse and you do enough to upset them that they'd rather ignore you than pretend you actually exist. Legally, Dr. Bergen says. However, once a child reaches adolescence, although they can't give formal consent, they have to agree to any hospital procedure, even if their parents have already signed off on it. This rule, if you ask me, is like the law against jaywalking. Everyone knows you're not supposed to do it, but that doesn't actually stop you. Dr. Bergen is still talking. In the rare instance where a parent and an adolescent patient disagree, the Ethics Committee weighs several factors, factors, whether the procedure is in the adolescent's best interests, the risk-slash-benefit scenario, the age and maturity of the adolescent, and the, and the argument he or she presents. Has the Ethics Committee at Providence Hospital ever met regarding the care of Kate Fitzgerald? There we go, Campbell asks. On two occasions, Dr. Bergen says. The first involving, involved allowing her to enter a trial for peripheral blood stem cell transplant in 2002, when her bone marrow transplant and several other options had failed. The second, more recently, involved whether or not it would be in her best interest to receive a donor kidney. What was the outcome, Dr. Bergen? We recommended that Kate Fitzgerald receive a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. As for the kidney, our group was split on that decision. Can you explain? Several of us felt that, at this point, the patient's health care had deteriorated to a point where major invasive transplant surgery was going to do more harm than good. Others believed that without a transplant, she would still die, and therefore the benefits outweighed the risk. If your team was split, then who gets to decide what will ultimately happen? In Kate's case, because she is still a minor, her her parents. During either of the times that your committee met regarding Kate's medical treatment, did you discuss the risks and benefits to the donor? That wasn't the issue at stake. What about the consent of the donor, Anna Fitzgerald? Dr. Bergen looks right at me, sympathetic, which it turns out is even is worse even than him thinking I'm a horrible person for filing this petition in the first place. He shakes his head. It goes without saying that no hospital in the country is going to take a child out a kidney out of a child who doesn't want to donate it. So Theoretically, if Anna was fighting this decision, this case, the case would most likely land on your desk. Well, has Anna's case landed on your desk, Doctor? No. Campbell advances toward him. Can you tell us why? Because she isn't a patient. Really? 
He pulls a stack of papers out from his briefcase and hands them to the judge and then to Dr. Bergen. These are Anna Fitzgerald's hospital records at Providence Hospital for the past 13 years. Why would there be records for her if she wasn't a patient? Dr. Bergen flips through them. She's had several invasive procedures, he admits. Go Campbell, I think. I am not one to believe in knights who ride in to rescue damsels in distress, but I bet it feels a little like this. Doesn't it strike you as odd that in 13 years, given the thickness of this file and the fact it exists in the first place, the Medical Ethics Committee never once convened to discuss what was being done to Anna? We were under the impression that donation was her wish. Are you telling me that if Anna had previously said she didn't want to give up lymphocytes or granulocytes or cord blood or even a bee sting kit in her backpack, the ethics committee would have acted differently? I know where you're going with this, Mr. Alexander, the psychiatrist says coldly. The problem is that this kind of medical situation hasn't existed before. There is no precedent. We're trying to feel our way as best we can. Isn't your job as an ethics committee to look at situations that haven't existed before? Well, yes. Dr. Bergen, in your expert opinion, is it ethically right for Anna Fitzgerald to have been asked to donate parts of her own body repeatedly for 13 years? Objection! My mother calls out. The judge strokes his chin. I want to hear this. Dr. Bergen glances at me again. Quite frankly, even before I knew that Anna didn't want to be a participant, I voted against her donating a kidney to her sister. I don't believe Kate would live through the transplant, and therefore Anna would undergo a serious operation for no reason at all. Up until this point, however, I think that the risk of the procedures was small, compared to the benefit the family as a whole received, and I support the choices the Fitzgeralds made for Anna. Campbell pretends to consider this. Dr. Bergen, what kind of car do you drive? A Porsche. Bet you like it. I do, he says guardedly. What if I told you that you have to give up your Porsche before you leave this courtroom because that action will save Judge DeSaldo's life? That's ridiculous. You... Campbell leans in. What if you had no choice? What if, today... Psychiatrists simply have to do whatever lawyers decide is in the best interests of others. He rolls his eyes. In spite of the high drama you're alluding to, Mr. Alexander, there are basic donor rights, safeguards put into place in medicine so that the greater good doesn't steamroll the pioneers who help create it. The United States has a long and nasty history of the abuse of informed consent, which is what led to laws relating to human subjects research. It keeps people from being used as experimental lab rats. Then tell us, Campbell says, how the hell did Anna Fitzgerald slip through the cracks? When I was only seven months old, there was a block party in our neighborhood. It's just as bad as you're thinking. Jello moles and towers of cheese cubes and dancing in the street to music piped out of someone's living room stereo. I, of course, have no personal recollection of any of this. I was plopped down in one of those walkers they made for babies before babies started turning, overturning them and cracking their heads open. At any rate, I was in my walker, tooling around between the tables and watching the other kids, so the story goes, when I sort of lost my footing. 
Our block is canted at an angle, and suddenly the wheels were moving faster than I could make them stop. I whizzed past adults under the barricade the cops had put up at the end of the road to shut it off to traffic, and I was heading right for a main drag full of cars. The Kate came out of nowhere and ran after me. She somehow managed to grab me by the back of my shirt moments before I got hit by a passing to Toyota. Every now and then, someone on the block brings this up. Me? I remember it as the time she saved me, instead of the other way around. My mother gets her first chance to play lawyer. Dr. Bergen, she says, how long have you known of my family? I've been at Providence Hospital for ten years now. In those ten years, when some aspect of Kate's treatment was pre presented to you, what did you do? Come up with a plan of action that was recommended, he says. Or an alternate, if possible. When you did, at any point in your research, in your report, did you mention... <coughs> Excuse me. I think that probably picked up. I need to drink some water. My voice is dying. I'm really not used to speaking so much. Like, it seems like it. Because I'm pretty chatty in here. But trust me. IRL, I am so goddamn quiet. And I'm just bookmarking where I'll end. So that I can estimate how much further I have to go. So, that moment of like, you know. You couldn't even see and I was talking to make it casual. But this talking moment was a cover up. <clears throat> when you did, at any point in your report, did you mention that Anna shouldn't be a part of it? No. Did you ever say this would hurt Anna considerably? No. Or put her in grave medical danger herself? No. Maybe it's not Campbell, after all, who will turn out to be my white knight. Maybe it's my mother. Dr. Bergen, she asks. Do you have kids? The doctor looks up. I have a son. He's 13. Have you ever looked at these cases that come up to the medical ethics committee and put yourself in a patient's shoes? Or better yet, a parent's shoes? I have, he admits. If you are me, my mother says, and the medical ethics committee handed you back a piece of paper with a suggested course of action that would save your son's life, would you question them further? Or would you just jump at the chance? He doesn't answer. He doesn't have to. Judge DeSalvo calls a second recess after that. Campbell says something about getting up and stretching my legs. So I start to follow him out, walking right past my mother. As I pass by, I feel her hand on my waist, tugging down my t-shirt, which is riding up in the back. She hates the spaghetti strap girls, the ones who come to school in halters and lowriders like they're trying out as dancers in a Britney Spears video instead of going to math class. I can almost hear her voice. Please tell me that shrank in the wash. She seems to realize mid-tug that maybe she shouldn't have done this. I stop, and Campbell stops, too, and her face goes bright red. Sorry, she says. I put my hand over hers and tuck my shirt into the back of my jeans where it should be. I look at Campbell. Meet you outside? 
He's given me a look that has bad idea written all over it, but he nods and heads down the aisle. Then my mother and I are nearly alone in the courtroom. I lean forward and kiss her on the cheek. You did really great up there, I tell her, because I don't know how to say what I really want to, that the people you love can surprise you every day, that maybe who we are isn't so much about what we do, but rather what we're capable of when we least expect it. <clears throat> least favorite character chapter time. Oh, man. All of her chapters are in the past. And that, like, bugs me a bit. But also it's, like, telling of her character. You know? That she's so determined in the past that it's hard for her to see the present. If you look at it figuratively and potentially, that was the goal. Sarah, 2002. Kate meets Taylor Ambrose when they were sitting side by side, hooked up to IVs. What are you here for? She asks, and I immediately look up from my book, because in all the years that Kate has been receiving outpatient treatment, I cannot remember her initiating a conversation. The boy she is talking to is not much older than she is, maybe 16 to her 14. He has brown eyes that dance and is wearing a Bruins cap over his bald head. The free cocktails, he answers, and the dimples in her cheeks deepen, in his cheeks deepen. Kate grins. Happy hour she says, and she looks up at the bag of platelets being infused into her. I'm Taylor. He holds out his hand. AML. Kate. APL. He whistles and raises his brows. Ooh, he says. A rarity. Kate tosses her cropped hair. Aren't we all? I watch this, amazed. Who was this flirt, and what has she done with my little girl? Platelets, he says, scrutinizing the label on her IV bag. You're in remission? Today, anyway. Kate glances at his pole, the telltale black bag that covers the cytotoxin. Chemo? Yeah, today, anyway. So, Kate, Taylor says. He has that rangy puppy look of a 16-year-old, one with knobby knees and thick fingers and cheekbones he hasn't yet grown into. When he crosses his arms, the muscles swell. I realize he's doing this on purpose, and I duck my head to hide a smile. What do you do when you're not at Providence Hospital? She thinks, and then a slow smile lights her up from the inside out. Wait for something that makes me come back. This makes Taylor laugh out loud. Maybe sometime we can wait together, he says, and he passes her a wrapper from a gauze pad. Can I have your phone number? Kate scribbles it down as Taylor's IV begins to beat. The nurse comes in and unhooks his line. You're out of here, Taylor, she says. Where's your ride? Waiting downstairs. I'm all set. He gets out of the padded chair slowly, almost weakly. The f the first reminder that this is not some casual conversation. He slips the piece of paper with our phone number into his pocket. Well, I'll call you, Kate. When when he leaves Kate when he leaves, Kate lets all her breath out in a dramatic finish. She rolls her head after him. Oh my god, she gasps. He's gorgeous. The nurse, checking her flow, grins. Tell me about it, honey. If only I were 30 years younger. Kate turns to me, blooming. You think he'll call? Maybe, I say. Where do you think we'll go out? 
I think of Brian, who has always said that Kate can date when she's 40. Let's take one step at a time, I suggest, but inside I am singing. The arsenic, which ultimately put Kate into remission, worked its magic by wearing her down. Taylor Ambrose, a drug of an entirely different sort, works his magic by building her up. It becomes a habit. When the phone rings at 7 p.m., Kate flies from the dinner table and hides in a closet with a portable receiver. The rest of us clear the dinner plates and spend time in the living room and get ready for bed, hearing little more than giggles and whispers. And then Kate emerges from her cocoon, flushed and glowing, first love beating like a hummingbird at the pulse in her throat. Every time it happens, I can't stop staring. It is not that Kate is so beautiful, although she is. It's that I never really let myself believe that I would see her all grown up. I follow her into the bathroom one night, after one of her marathon phone sessions. Kate stares at herself in the mirror, pursing her lips and raising her brows in a come-hither pose. Her hand comes up to her cropped hair. After the chemo, it never grew back in waves, just thick, straight tufts that she usually cultivates with mousse to look like bedhead. She holds her palm out, as if she still expects to see hair shedding. What do you think he sees when he looks at me? Kate asks. I come to stand behind her. She is not the child that mirrors me. That would be Jessie. And yet, when you put us side by side, there are definite similarities. It's not in the shape of the of the mouth but the set of it, the sheer determination that silvers our eyes. I think he sees a girl who knows what he's been through, I tell her honestly. I got on the internet and read up on, a on AML, she says. His leukemia's got a pretty high cure rate, she turns to me. When you care more if someone else lives than you do about yourself, is that what love's like? It is hard, all of a sudden, to pull an answer through the tunnel of my throat. Exactly. Kate runs the tap and washes her face with a foam of soap. I hand her a towel, and as she rises from the cloud a bit, she says, Something bad's going to happen. On alert, I search her out for clues. What's the matter? Nothing, but that's the way it works. If there's something as good as Taylor in my life, I'm going to pay for it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, I say out of habit. Yet there is a truth to this. Anyone who believes that people have ultimate control of what life hands to them needs only to spend a day in the shoes of a child with leukemia or her mother. Maybe you're finally getting a break, I say. Three days later, during a routine CBC, the hematologist tells us that Kate is once again throwing promylocytes, the first slide down a steep slope of relapse. I have never eave eavesdropped at least not intentionally, until the night that Kate comes back from her first date with Taylor to see a movie. She tiptoes into her room and sits down on Anna's bed. You awake? She asks. Anna rolls over, groans. I am now. Sleep slips away from her, like a shawl falling to the floor. How was it? Wow, Kate says, and she laughs. Wow! Hang on, my ear itches. How wow? Like tonsil hockey wow? You are so disgusting, Kate whispers, although there's a smile behind it. But he is a really good kisser. She dangles this like a fisherman. Get out! Anna's voice chimes. So what was it like? Flying, Kate answers. I bet it feels just the same way. 
I don't get what that has in common with someone slobbering all over you. God, Anna, it's not like he spits on you. What does Taylor ta taste like? Popcorn, she laughs. And guy. How did you know what to do? I didn't. It just kind of happened, like the way you play hockey. This, finally, makes sense to Anna. Well, she says, I do feel pretty good when I'm doing that. You have no idea, Kate sighs. There is some movement. I imagine her stripping off her clothes. I wonder if Taylor is imagining the same, the same somewhere. Pillow is punched, cover yanked back, sheets rustle as Kate gets into bed and rolls onto her side. Anna? Hmm? He has scars on his palms, from graft versus host, Kate murmurs. I could feel them when we were holding hands. Was it gross? No, she says. It was like we matched. At first, I can't get Kate to agree to undergo the peripheral blood stem cell transplant. She refuses because she doesn't want to be hospitalized for chemo, doesn't want to have to sit in reverse isolation for the next six weeks when she could be going out with Taylor Ambrose. It's your life, I point out to her, and she looks at me as if I'm crazy. Exactly, she says. In the end, we compromise. The oncology team agrees to let Kate begin her chemo as an outpatient in preparation for a transplant from Anna. At home, she agrees to wear a mask. At the first indication of her counts dropping, she'll be hospitalized. They aren't happy. They worry it will affect the procedure. But like me, they also understand that Kate has reached the age where she can bargain with her will. As it turns out, this separation anxiety is all for naught, since Taylor shows up for Kate's first outpatient chemo appointment. What are you doing here? I can't seem to stay away, he jokes. Hey, Mrs. Fitzgerald. He sits down beside Kate in the empty adjoining chair. God, it feels good to be in one of these without an IB hookup. Rub it in, Kate mutters. Taylor puts his hand on her arm. How far into it are you? Just started. He gets up and sits on the wide arm of Kate's chair, picks the uh, amesis ba basin from Kate's, up from Kate's lap. A hundred bucks says you can't make it till three without tossing your cookies. Kate glances at the clock. It is 2.50. You're on. What did you have for lunch? He grins. Wicked. Or should I guess based on the colors? You're disgusting, Kate says, but her smile is as wide as the sea. Taylor puts his hand on her shoulder. She leans into the contact. The first time Brian touched me, he saved my life. There had been cataclysmic downpours in Providence, a nor'easter that swelled the tides and put the parking lot in, at the courthouse entirely underwater. I was clerking then, when we were evacuated. Brian's department wasn't charged. Charge. I walked onto the stone steps of the building to see cars floating by, and abandoned purses, and even a terrified paddling dog. While I had been filing briefs, the world I knew had been submerged. <clears throat> Need a hand? Brian asked, dressed in his full turnout gear, and he held out his arms. As he swam me to higher ground, rain struck my face and pelted my back. I wondered how, in a deluge, I could feel like I was being burned alive. What's the longest you've ever gone without before throwing up? Kate asks Taylor. Two days. Get out! The nurse glances up from her paperwork. True, she confirms. I saw it with my own eyes. 
Taylor grins at her. I told you, I'm a master at this. He looks at the clock. 2.57. Don't you have anywhere else you'd rather be? Kate says, trying to weasel out of the bet. Trying to spare you. Although, before she can finish, she goes green. Both the nurse and I rise from our, from our seats. But Taylor reaches Kate first. He holds the vomit basin beneath her chin and... And when she starts retching, she ru he rubs his hand in slow circles on her upper back. Okay, I need a break. My throat is, like, dying, dying. Pause. Hello? My throat's doing better. We are back. Uh, he holds the vomit basin beneath her chin, and when she starts retching... He rubs his hand in slow circles on her upper back. It's okay, he soothes, close to her temple. The nurse and I exchange gla glances. Looks like she's in good hands, the nurse says, and she leaves to take care of another patient. When Kate is finished, Taylor puts the basin aside and wipes her mouth with a tissue. She looks up at him, glow-eyed and flushed, her nose still running. Sorry, she mutters. For what? Taylor says. Tomorrow, it could be me. I wonder if all mothers feel like this the moment they realize their daughters are growing up. As if it is impossible to believe that the laundry I once folded for her was doll-sized. As if I can still see her dancing in lazy pirouettes along the lip of the sandbox. Wasn't it yesterday that her hand was only as big as the sand dollar she found on the beach? That same hand, the one that's holding a boy's, wasn't it? Hang on, I lost my spot. was just... That same hand, the one that's holding a boy's, wasn't it just holding mine, tugging so that I might stop and see the spider web, the milkweed pond, one of any, any of a thousand moments she wanted me to freeze? Time is an optical illusion, never quite as solid or as strong as we think, as we think it is. You would assume that, given everything, I saw this coming. But watching Kate watch this boy, I see I have a thousand things to learn. I'm some fun date, Kate murmurs. Taylor smiles at her. Fries, he says, for lunch. Kate smacks his shoulder. You are disgusting. He raises one brow. You lost the bet, you know. I seem to have left my trust fund at home. Taylor pretends to study her. Okay. I know what you can give me instead. Sexual favors? Kate says, forgetting I am here. Gee, I don't know. Taylor laughs. Taylor laughs. I said that so quiet. I, If it picked up the first time and I said it again for no reason. Eh. Should we ask your mom? She goes plum red. Oops. Keep this up, I warn. And your next date will be during a bone marrow aspiration. You know the hospital has this dance, right? Suddenly, Taylor is jittery. His knee bobs up and down. It's for kids who are sick. There are doctors and nurses there, in case, and it's held in one of the conference rooms at the hospital, but for the most part, it's just like a regular prom. You know, lame band, ugly taxes, punch, punch spiked with platelets. He swallows. I'm just kidding about that last part. Well... I went last year, stag, and it was pretty dumb, but I figure since you're a patient and I'm a patient, maybe this year we could, like, go together. Kate, with an aplomb I never would have guessed she possesses, considers the offer. 
When is it? Saturday. As it turns out, I don't have any, I don't have plans to kick the bucket that day. She beams at him. I'd love to. Cool, Taylor says, smiling. Very cool. He reaches for a fresh basin, careful of Kate's IV line, which snakes down between them. I wonder if her heart is pumping faster, if it will affect the medication, if she'll be sicker, sooner rather than later. Taylor settles Kate into the crook of his arm. Together, they wait for what comes next. It's too low, I say, as Kate holds a pale yellow dress up below her neck. From the spot on the boutique floor where she is sitting, Anna offers up her opinion, too. You'd look like a banana. We have... We have been shopping for a prom dress for hours. Kate has only two days to prepare for this dance, and it has become an obsession. What she will wear, how she will do her makeup, if the band is going to play anything remotely decent. Her hair, of course, is not an issue. After chemo, she lost it all. She hates wigs. They feel like bugs on her scalp, she says. But she's too self-conscious to go commando. Today, she has wrapped... She has wrapped a batik scarf around her head, like a proud, pale African queen. The reality of this outing hasn't matched Kate's dreams. Dresses that normal girls wear to proms bear the midriff or shoulders, where Kate's skin is riddled and thickened with scarring. They cling in all the wrong places. They, they are cut to showcase a healthy, hale body, not to hide the lack of it. The saleswoman who hovers like a hummingbird takes the dress from Kate. It's actually quite modest she pushes. It really does cover up a fair amount of cleavage. Will it cover this? Kate snaps, popping open the buttons of her peasant blouse to reveal her recently replaced Hickman catheter, which sprouts from the center of her chest. The saleswoman gasps before she can remember to stop herself. Oh, she says faintly. Kate, I scold. She shakes her head. Let's just get out of here. As soon as we are on the street in front of the boutique, I lace into her. Just because you're angry, you don't have to take it out on the rest of the world. Well, she's a bitch, Kate retorts. Did you see her looking at my scarf? Maybe she just liked the pattern, I say dryly. Yeah, and maybe I'm going to wake up tomorrow and not be sick. Her words fall like boulders between us, cracking the sidewalk. I'm not going to find a stupid dress. I don't know why I even told Taylor I'd go in the first place. Don't you think every other girl who's going to that dance is in the same boat? Trying to find gowns that cover up tubes and bruises and wires and col colostomy bags and God knows what? I don't care about anyone else, Kate says. I want it to look good. Really good, you know? For one night. Taylor already thinks you're beautiful. Well, I don't, Kate cries. I don't, Mom, and maybe I want to just once. It is a warm day, one where the sun ground, one where the ground beneath our feet seems to be breathing. The sun beats down on my head, on the back of my neck. What do I say to that? I have never been Kate. I have prayed and begged and wanted to be the one who's sick in lieu of her, some devil's Faustian bargain, but that is not the way it's happened. We'll sew something, I suggest. You can design it. You don't know how to sew, Kate sighs. I'll learn. In a day, she shakes her head. You can't fix it every time, Mom. How come I know that and you don't? She leaves me on the sidewalk and storms off. 
Anna runs after her, loops her arm through Kate's elbow, and drags her into a storefront a few feet away from the boutique while I hurry to catch up. It is a salon filled with gum-cracking hairstylists. Kate is struggling to get away from Anna, but Anna, she can be strong when she wants to be. Hey, Anna says, getting the attention of the receptionist. Do you work here? When I'm forced to. You guys do prom hairstyles? Sure, the stylist says. Like an updo? Yeah, for my sister. Anna looks at Kate, who has stopped fighting. A smile glows slowly across her face, like a firefly caught in a jelly jar. That's right. For me, Kate says mischievously, and she unwinds the scarf from her bald head. Everyone in the salon stops speaking. Kate stands regally straight. We were thinking of French braids, Anna continues. A perm, Kate adds. Anna giggles. Maybe a nice chignon. The stylist swallows, caught between shock and sympathy and political correctness. Well, um, we might be able to do something for you. She clears her throat. There's always, you know, extensions. Extensions, Anna repeats, and Kate bursts out laughing. The stylist begins to look behind the girls, toward the ceiling. Is this like a candid camera thing? At that, my daughters collapse into each other's arms, hysterical. They laugh until they cannot catch their breath. They laugh until they cry. As a chaperone at the Providence Hospital prom, I am in charge of the punch. Like every other food item pro provided for the celebrants, it's neutropenic. The nurses, fairy godmothers for the night, have converted a conference room into a fantasy dance hall, complete with streamers and a disco ball and mood lighting. Kate is a vine twined around Taylor. They sway to completely different music than the song that is playing. Kate wears her obligatory blue mask. Taylor has given her a corsage made of silk flowers, because real ones can carry diseases that am that immunocompromised patients can't fight off. In the end, I did not wind up sewing a dress. I found one online at bluefly.com, a gold sheath cut into a V for Kate's cut in a V for Kate's catheter. But over this is a long-sleeved sheer shirt, one that wraps at the waist and glimmers when she turns this way and that. So, so when you notice the strange triple tubing coming out of her breastbone, you wonder if it was only a trick of the light. We took a thousand photos before leaving the house. When Kate and Taylor had escaped and were waiting for me in the car, I went to put the camera away and found Brian in the kitchen with his back to me. Hey, I said, you going to wave us off? Throw, ri throw rice? It was only when he turned around that I realized he'd come in here to cry. I didn't expect to see this, he said. I didn't think I'd get to have this memory. I fitted myself against him, working our bodies so tight it felt as if we'd been carved from the same smooth stone. Wait up for us, I whispered, and then I left. Now, I hand a cup of punch to a boy whose hair is just starting to fall out in small tufts. It sheds on the black lapel of his tuxedo. Thanks, he says, and I see he has the most beautiful eyes, dark and still as a panther's. I glance away and realize that Kate and Taylor are gone. What if she's sick? What if he's sick? I have promised myself I wouldn't be overprotective, but there are too many children here for the staff to really keep track of. I ask another parent to take over my punch station, and then I search out the ladies' room. I check the supply closet. I walk through empty hallway. Sorry. Empty hallways and dark corridors and even the chapel. Chapel? 
Eh, chapel, probably. Finally, I hear Kate's voice through a cracked doorway. She and Taylor stand under a spotlight moon, holding hands. The courtyard they found is a favorite for the residents during the daytime. Many doctors who wouldn't otherwise see the light of the sun take their lunches out here. I am about to ask if they're all right when Kate speaks. Are you afraid of dying? Taylor shakes his head. Not really. Sometimes, though, I think about my funeral. If people will say good things, you know, about me. If anyone will cry, he hesitates. If anyone will even come. I will, Kate promises. Taylor dips his head between toward Kate's, and she sways closer, and I realized that this is why I followed them. I knew this was what I would find, and like Brian, I wanted one more picture of my daughter, one that I might worry between my fingers like a piece of sea glass. Taylor lifts up the edges of her blue hygienic masks, mask, and I know I should stop him. I know I have to, but I don't. This much I want her to have. When they kiss, it is beautiful. Those alabaster heads bent together, smooth as statues. An optical illusion, a mirror image that's folding into itself. When Kate goes into the hospital for her stem cell transplant, she's an emotional wreck. She is far less concerned with the runny fluid being infused into her catheter than she is with the fact that Taylor hasn't called her in three days, and has in fact not returned her calls either. Did you have a fight? I ask, and she shakes her head. Did he say he was going somewhere? Maybe it was an emergency, I say. Maybe this has nothing to do with you at all. Maybe it does, Kate argues. Then the best revenge is getting healthy enough to give him a piece of your mind, I point out. I'll be right back. In the hallway, I approach staff, a nurse who has just come on duty and who's known Kate for years. The truth is, I am just as surprised about Taylor's lack of communication as Kate is. He, kn he knew she was coming in here. Taylor Ambrose, I ask staff, has he been in today? She looks at me and blinks. Big kid, sweet, hung up on my daughter, I joke. Oh, Sarah, I thought for sure someone would have told you, Steph says. He died this morning. I don't tell Kate. Not for a month. Not until the day Dr. Chan says Kate is well enough to leave the hospital. Until Kate has already convinced herself she was better off without him. I cannot begin to tell you the words I use. None of them are big enough to bear the weight behind them. I mentioned how I went, in, I went to Taylor's house and spoke to his mother. How she broke down in my arms and said she'd wanted to call me. But there was a part of her that was so jealous it swallowed all her speech. She told me that Taylor... There we are. She told me that Taylor, who'd come home from the prom walking on air, had walked into her bedroom in the middle of the night with a 105-degree fever. How maybe it was viral and maybe it was fungal, but he'd gone into respiratory distress and then cardiac arrest, and after 30 minutes of trying, the doctors had to let him go. I don't tell Kate something else, Jenna Ambrose said. That afterward, she went inside and stared at her son, who wasn't her son anymore, that she sat for five whole hours, sure he was going to wake up, that even now she hears noise overhead and thinks Taylor is moving around his room, and that the second, and that the half second she is gifted before she remembers the truth is the only reason she gets up each morning. Kate, I say, I'm so sorry. Kate's face crumples. But I loved him she replies, as if this should be enough. I know. And you didn't tell me. I couldn't. Not when I thought it might make you stop fighting back yourself.
She closes her eyes and turns onto her side on the pillow, crying so hard that the monitor she's still hooked up to begin to beep and bring in the nursing staff. I reach for her. Kate, honey, I did what was best for you. She refuses to look in my direction. Don't talk to me, she murmurs. You're good at that. Okay, so last time I read through, I did bring this up, and I'm going to again because it was a good thing that I brought it up. This is like another moment of Sarah Fitzgerald just going with what she thinks is best and not what is best because she heard that conversation even if she wasn't supposed to. Kate said she would be at Taylor's funeral. She really loved him. And to withhold that information for a month, make her think for the rest of her life how she broke that promise to her first love? It's terrible. It's terrible to do that. And I know that it's like you were worried about your kid and you want her to live. But this is also what I was going to bring up earlier about like Sarah Fitzgerald ignoring the pain that her kids are going through and focusing more on her own pain. And the physical issues than the mental. I was gonna bring up Kate's, like, boyfriend dying. But then I remembered we weren't there yet, so I couldn't say that. <coughs> but yeah... Kate stops speaking to me for seven days and eleven hours. We come home from the hospital. We go about our business of reverse isolation. We pick through the motions because we have done it before. At night, I lie in bed next to Brian and wonder why he can sleep. I stare at the ceiling and think that I have lost my daughter before she's even gone. Then one day, I walk by her bedroom and find her sitting on the floor with photographs all around. There are, as I expect, the ones of her and Taylor that we took before the prom. Kate dressed to the nines with that telltale surgical mask covering her mouth. Taylor has drawn a lipstick smile on it. For the sake of the photos, or so he said. Sorry. Had to hydrate. It had made Kate laugh. It seems impossible that this boy, who was so solid a present when presence when the flash went off mere weeks ago simply is not here anymore a pang goes through me and immediately on its heels a single word practice but there are other photos too from when kate was younger one of kate and anna on the beach crouched over a hermit crab one of kate dressed up like mr peanut for halloween one of kate with cream cheese all over her face holding up two halves of a bagel like that like eyeglasses in another pile are her, ba are her baby pictures, all taken when she was three or younger, gap-toothed and grinning, backlit by a, sh by a slow-eyed sun, unaware of what was to come. I don't remember being her, Kate says quietly, and these first words make a bridge of glass, one that shifts beneath my feet as I step into the room. I put my hand beside hers at the edge of one photo, Bent at the corner, it shows Kate as a toddler being tossed into the air by Brian, her hair flying behind her, her arms in like starfish's blade, certain beyond a doubt that when she fell to earth again, there would be a safe landing, sure that she deserved nothing less. She was beautiful, 
Kate adds, and with her pinky, she strokes the glossy, vivid cheek of the girl none of us ever got to know. Jessie. The summer I was 14, my parents sent me to boot camp on a farm. It was one of those action adventures for troubled kids, you know? Get up at 4 a.m. to do the milking, and how much trouble can you really get into? The answer, if you're interested, score pot off the ranch hands, get stoned, tip cows. Anyway, one day I was assigned to Moses Patrol, or that's what we called the poor son of a bitch who pulled herding duty with the lambs. I had to follow about a hundred sheep around a pasture that didn't have one goddamned tree to provide even a sliver of sh sliver of shade. To say a sheep is the dumbest fucking animal on earth is probably an understatement. They get caught in fences. They get lost in four-foot square pens. They forget where to find their food, although it's been in the same place for a thousand days straight. And they're not the little puffy darlings you picture when you go to sleep, either. They stink. They bleat. They're annoying as hell. Anyway, the day I was stuck with the sheep, I had filched a copy of Tropic of Cancer and I was folding down the pages that came closest to good porn when I heard someone scream. I was perfectly sure, mind you, that it wasn't an animal, because I'd never heard anything like this in my life. I ran toward the sound, sure I was going to find someone thrown from a horse with their leg twisted like a pretzel, or some yo-ho who'd emptied his revolver by accident into his own guts. But lying on the side of the creek, with a bevy of ewes in, in attendance, was a sheep giving birth. I wasn't a vet or anything, but I knew enough to realize that when any living creature makes a racket like that, things aren't going according to plan. Sure enough, this poor sheep had two little hooves dangling out of her privates. She lay on her side, panting. She rolled one flat black eye toward me, then just gave up. Well, nothing was dying on my patrol, if only because I knew that the Nazis who ran the camp would make me bury the damn animal. So I shoved the other sheep out of the way. I got down on my knees and grabbed the naughty slick hooves and yanked while the youth screamed like any mother whose child is ripped away from her. The lamb came out, its limbs folded like the parts of a Swiss army knife. Over its head was a silver sack that felt like the inside of your cheek when you wrung your tongue around it. It wasn't breathing. I sure as shit wasn't going to put my mouth over a sheep and do artificial respiration, but I used my fingernails to rip apart the skin sack to yank it down from the neck of the lamb. And it turned out that was all it needed. A minute later, it unbent its clothespin legs and started wickering for its mother. There were, I think, 20 lambs born during that summer session. Every time I passed the pen, I could pick mine out from a crowd. He looked like all the others, except that he moved with a little more spring. He always seemed to have the sun shining off the oil in its wool. And if you happened to get him calm enough to look in the eye, the pupils had gone milky white, a sure sign that he'd walked on the other side long enough to remember what he was missing. I tell you this now because when Kate finally stirs in that hospital bed and opens her eyes, I know she's got one foot on the other side already, too. Oh my god, Kate says weakly when she sees me. I wound up in hell after all. I lean forward in my chair and cross my arms. Now, sis, you know I'm not that easy to kill. Getting up, I kiss her on the forehead, letting my lips stay an extra second. How is it that mothers can read fever that way? I can only read imminent loss. How you doing? She smiles at me, but it's like a cartoon drawing when I've seen the real thing hanging in the Louvre. Peachy, she says. To what do I owe the honor of your presence?
because you won't be here much longer, I think, but I do not tell her this. I was in the neighborhood. Plus, there's a really hot nurse who works this shift. This makes Kate laugh out loud. God, Jess, I'm gonna miss you. She says it so easily that I think it surprises both of us. I sit down on the edge of the bed and trace the little puckers in the thermal blanket. You know, I begin to, I begin a pep talk, but she puts her hand on my arm. Don't. Then her eyes come alive for just a moment. Maybe I'll get reincarnated. Like as Marie Antoinette? No, it's gotta be something in the future. You think that's crazy? No, I admit. I think we probably all just keep running in circles. So what will you do? So what will you come back as then? Carrion, she winces, and something beeps, and I panic. You want me to get someone? No, you're fine. Kate answers, and I'm sure she doesn't mean it this way, but it pretty much makes me feel like I've swallowed lightning. I suddenly remember an old game I used to play when I was nine or ten, and was allowed to ride my bike until it got dark. I used to make little bets with myself as I watched the sun getting lower and lower on the horizon. If I hold my breath to twenty seconds, the night won't come. If I don't blink, if I don't blink, if I stand so still a fly lands on my cheek. Now, I find myself doing the same thing bargaining to keep Kate, even though that isn't the way it works. Are you afraid, I blurt out, of dying? Kate turns to me, a smile sliding over her mouth. I'll let you know. Then she closes her eyes. I'm just gonna rest a second, she manages, and she is asleep again. It's not fair, but Kate knows that. It doesn't take a whole long life to realize that, we, that what we deserve to have, we rarely get. I stand up with that lightning bolt branding the lining of my throat, which makes it impossible to swallow, so everything gets backed up like a damned river. I hurry, up, I hurry out of Kate's room and far enough down the hall where I want to start her, and then I lift my fist and punch a hole in the thick white wall, and still this isn't enough. My throat's dying again, but I need to finish this. It's like... Um... What's 350 minus 326? Alexa! What's 350 minus 326? 24? She said 24. So, like, roughly 24 more pages. Brian. Here's the recipe to blow something up. A Pyrex bowl. Potassium chloride, found at health food stores, as a salt substitute. A hydrometer. Bleach. Take the bleach and pour it into the Pyrex. Put it on a stove. Put it onto a stove burner. Meanwhile, weigh out your potassium chloride and add to the bleach. Check it with the hydrometer and boil until you get a reading of 1.3. Cool to room temperature and filter out the crystals that form. This is what you will save. It's hard to be the one who always waiting. I mean, there's something to be said for the hero who charges charges off to battle, but when you get right down to it, there's a whole story in who's left behind. I'm in what has to be the ugliest courtroom on the East Coast, sitting in chairs until it's my turn, when suddenly my beeper goes off. I look at the number, groan, and try to figure out what to do. I'm a witness later, but the department needs me right now. It takes a few talking 
It takes a few talking heads, but I get permission from the judge to remove myself from the premises. I leave through the front door, and immediately I'm assailed with questions and cameras and lights. It is everything I can do not to punch these vultures, who want to rip apart the bleached bones of my family. When I couldn't find Anna the morning of the hearing, I headed home. I looked in all her usual haunts, the kitchen, the bedroom, the hammock out back, but she wasn't there. As a last resort, I climbed to the garage stairs to the apartment Jesse uses. He wasn't home either, although by now this is hardly a surprise. There was a time when Jesse disappointed me regularly. Eventually, I told myself not to expect anything from him, and as a result, it has gotten easier for me to take what comes. I knocked on the door and yelled for Anna, for Jesse, but no one answered. Although there was a key to this apartment on my own set, I stopped short of letting myself inside. Turning on the stairs, I knocked over the red recycling bin I personally empty every Tuesday, since God forbid Jesse can remember to drag it out to the curb himself. The ten pin of beer bottles, lucent green, tumbled out. An empty jug of laundry detergent, an olive jar, a gallon container from orange juice. I put everything back in, except for the orange juice container, which I've told Jesse isn't recyclable and which he puts in the bin nonetheless every damn week. The difference between these fires and the other ones was that now the stakes have, ratch have been ratcheted up a notch. Instead of an abandoned warehouse or a shack at the side of the water, it is an elementary school. This being summer, no one was on the premises when the fire was started. But there's no question in my mind it was due to unnatural causes. When I get there, the engines are just loading up after salvage and overhaul. Polly comes over to me right away. How's Kate? She's okay, I tell him, and I nod toward the mess. What did you find? He's, he pretty much managed to gut the whole north side of the facility. Polly says. You doing a walkthrough? Yeah. The fire began in the teacher's lounge. The charred patterns point like an arrow to the origin. A collection of synthetic stuffing that hasn't burnt clean through is still visible. Whoever set this was smart enough to light his fire in the middle of a pile of couch cushions and stacks of paper. I can still smell the accelerant. This time it was as simple as gasoline. Bits of glass from the exploded Molotov cocktail litter the ashes. I wander to the far side of the building, peer through a broken window. The guys must have vented the fire here. You think we'll catch this little fuck, Cap? Asks Caesar, coming into the room. Still in his turnout gear, with a smudge across his left cheek, he looks down on the debris at the debris at the, in the fire line. Then he bends down, and with his heavy glove, picks up a cigarette butt. Unbelievable. The secretary's desk melted down to a puddle, but a goddamn tobacco stick survives. I take, it off. I take it out of his hands and turn it over in my palm. That's because it wasn't here when the fire started. Someone had a nice smoke while, while he watched this, and then he walked away. I tip it onto the side to where the yellow meets the filter and read the brand. Polly sticks his head in the shattered window, looking for Caesar. We're heading back. Get on the truck. Then he turns to me. Hey, just so you know, we didn't break this one. I wasn't going to make you pay for it, Polly. No, I mean, we vented the roof. This was already broken when we got here. He and Caesar leave, and a few moments later, I hear the heavy drag of the engine pulling away. It could have been a stray baseball or a frisbee, but even in the summertime, janitors monitor school public property. A broken window was too much of a hazard to be left alone. It would have been taped up or boarded. 
unless the same guy who started the fire knew where to bring in oxygen so that the flames would race through the wind tunnel created by the vacuum. By that vacuum. I looked down at the cigarette in my hand and crush it. You need 56 grams of these reserved crystals. Mix with distilled water. Heat to a boil and cool again. Save the crystals. Pure potassium chlorate. Grind these to the consistency of a of face powder and heat gently to, cr to dry. Melt five parts Vaseline with five parts wax. Dissolve in gasoline and pour this liquid onto 90 parts potassium chlorate crystals in a, in a plastic bowl. Knead. Allow the gasoline to evaporate. Mold into a cube and dip in wax to make it waterproof. This explosive requires a blasting cap of at least a grade A3. When Jesse opens the door to his apartment, I am waiting on the couch. What are you doing here? He asks. What are you doing here? I live here, Jesse says. Remember? Do you? Or are you using this as a place to hide? He takes out a cigarette from a pack in his front pocket and lights up. Merits. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Why aren't you in court? How come there's a there's muriatic acid under your sink? I ask, considering that we don't have a pool. Hello? Is this, like, the Inquisition? He scowls. I used it when I was working with those tile layers last summer. You can clean up grout with it. To tell you the truth, I didn't even know I still had it. Then you probably wouldn't know, Jess, that when you put it in a, into a bottle with a piece of aluminum foil with a rag stuffed into the top, it blows up pretty damn well. He goes very still. Are you accusing me of something? Because if you are, just say it, you bastard. I get up from the couch. Okay. I want to know if you scored the bottles before you made the cocktails so that they'd break easier. I want to know if you realized how close that homeless guy was to dying when you set the warehouse on fire for kicks. Reaching behind me, I lift the empty Clorox container from his recycle bin. I want to know why the hell this is in your trash when you don't do your own laundry and God knows you don't clean. Yet there's an elementary school six miles from here that's been gutted with an explosive made of bleach and brake fluid. I have him by the shoulders now, and although Jess could break away if he really tried, he lets me shake him until his head snaps back. Jesus Christ, Jesse! He stares at me, his face blank. Are you about done? I let him go, and he backs away, teeth bared. Then tell me I'm wrong, I challenge. I'll tell you more than that, he yells. I mean, I totally understand that you've spent your life believing that everything that's wrong in the universe all traces back to me. But newsflash, Dad, this time you're totally off base. Slowly, I take something out of my pocket and press it into Jesse's hand. The Merritt cigarette butt settles in the hollow of his palm. Then you shouldn't have left your calling card. There's a point when a structure fire is raging out of control that you simply have to give it the, the distance to burn itself out. So you move back to safety, to a hill out of the wind, and you watch the building eat itself alive. Jesse's hand comes up, trembling, and the cigarette rolls to the floor at our feet. He covers his face, presses his thumbs to the corners of his eyes. I couldn't save her. The words are ripped from his center. He hunches his shoulders, sliding backward into the body of a boy. Who, who did you tell? He is asking, I realize, whether the police will be coming after him, whether I have spoken to Sarah about this. He is asking to be punished. 
So I do what I know will destroy him. I pull Jesse into my arms as he sobs. His back is broader than mine. He stands a half-head taller than me. I don't remember seeing him go from that five-year-old boy who wasn't a genetic match to the man he is now, and I guess this is the problem. How does someone go from thinking that if he cannot rescue, he must destroy? And do you blame him, or do you blame the folks who should have told him otherwise? I will make sure that my son's pyromania ends here and now, but I won't tell the cops or the fire chief about this. Maybe that's nepotism. Maybe it's stupidity. Maybe it's because Jesse isn't all that different from me, choosing fire as his medium, needing to know that he could command at least one uncontrollable thing. Jesse's breathing evens against me, like it used to when he was so small, when I used to carry him upstairs after he'd fallen asleep in my lap. He used to hit me over and over with questions. What's a two-inch hose for? A one-inch. How come you wash the engines? Does the cam man ever get to drive? I realized that I cannot remember exactly when he stopped asking, but I do remember feeling as if something had gone missing, as if the loss of a child of a kid's hero warship can ache like a phantom limb. Campbell. Doctors have this thing about being sub subpoenaed. They let you know, with every syllable of every word, that no moment of this testimony will make up for the fact that while they were sitting on the witness stand under duress, patients were waiting. People were dying. Frankly, it pisses me off. And before I know it, I can't help myself. I am asking for a bathroom break leaning down to retie my shoe, gathering my thoughts and stuffing sentences with pregnant pauses, whatever it takes to keep them cooling their heels just a few seconds more. Dr. Chance is no exception to the rule. From the onset, he's anxious to leave. He checks his watch so often you'd think he was about to miss a train. The difference this time is that Sarah Fitzgerald is just as anxious to get him out of the courtroom, because the patient who is waiting, the person who is dying, is Kate. But beside me, Anna's body throws heat. I get up, continue my questioning, slowly. Dr. Chance, were any of the treatments that involved donations from Anna's body sure things? Nothing in cancer is a sure thing, Mr. Alexander. Was that ever explained to the Fitzgeralds? We carefully explain the risks of every procedure, because once you begin treatments, you compromise other bodily systems. What we wind up doing for one treatment successfully may come back to haunt you the next time around. He smiles at Sarah. That said, Kate's an incredible young woman. She wasn't expected to live past age five, and here she is at 16. Thanks to her sister, I point out. Dr. Chance nods. Not many patients have both the strength of body and the good fortune to have a perfectly matched donor available to them. I stand up, my hands in my pockets. Can you tell the court how the Fitzgeralds came to consult Providence Hospital's pre-implantation genetic diagnosis team to conceive Anna? After their son was tested and found to be an unsuitable donor for Kate, I told the Fitzgeralds about another family I'd worked with. They'd tested all the patient's siblings, and none qualified, but then the mother got pregnant during the course of treatment, and that child happened to be a perfect match. Did you tell the Fitzgeralds to conceive a genetically programmed child to serve as a donor for Kate? Absolutely not, Chance says, affronted. I just explained that even if none of the existing children was a match, that didn't mean that a future child might not be. Uh... 
Did you explain to the Fitzgeralds that this child, as a perfectly genetically programmed match, would have to be available for all these treatments for Kate throughout her life? We were talking about a single cord blood treatment at the time, Dr. Chan says. Subsequent donations came about because Kate didn't respond to the first one, and because they offered more promising results. Promising results. Where am I? There I am. So if tomorrow scientists were to come up with a procedure that would cure Kate's cancer, if Anna only cut off her head and gave it to her sister, would you recommend that? Obviously not. I would never recommend a treatment that risked another child's life. Isn't that what you've done for the past 13 years? His fate tightens. None of the treatments have caused significant long-term harm to Anna. I take a piece of paper out of my briefcase and hand it to the judge, and then to Dr. Chance. Can you read the part that's marked? He puts on a pair of glasses and clears his throat. I understand that anesthesia involves potential risks. These risks may include, but are not limited to, adverse drug reactions, sore throat, injury to teeth and dental work, damage to vocal cords, respiratory problems, minor pain and discomfort, loss of sensation, headaches, infection, allergic reaction, awareness during general anesthesia, jaundice, bleeding, nerve injury, blood clot, heart attack, brain damage, and even loss of bodily function or of life. Are you familiar with this form, doctor? Yes, it's a standard consent form for a surgical procedure. Can you tell us who the patient receiving it was? Anna Fitzgerald. And who signed the consent form? Sarah Fitzgerald. I rock back on my heels. Dr. Chance, anesthesia carries a risk of life impairment or death. Those are pretty strong long-term effects. That's exactly why we have a consent form, is to protect us from people like you. But really, he says... But realistically, the risk... What the fuck? The risk is extremely small. And the procedure... Sorry, I'm like shifting around. And I lost my panda bookmark, which I'll have to find. Where the fuck am I? But realistically, the risk is extremely small. And the procedure of donating marrow is fairly simple. Why was Anna being in a... Anesthetized for such a simple procedure. It's less traumatic for a child, and they're less likely to squirm around. And after the procedure, did Anna experience any pain? Maybe a little, Dr. Chance says. You don't remember? It's been a long time. I'm sure even Anna's forgotten about it by now. You think? I turn to Anna. Should we ask her? Judge DeSaldo crosses his arms. Speaking of risk, I continue smoothly. Can you tell us about the research that's been done on the long-term effects of the growth factor that shots she's taken twice now, prior to harvest for transplant? Theoretically, there shouldn't be any long-term sequelae. Theoretically, I repeat. Why theoretically? Because the research has been done on lab animals, Dr. Chance admits. Effects on humans are still being tracked. How comforting. He shrugs. Physicians don't tend to prescribe drugs that have the potential to wreak havoc. Have you ever heard of thalidomide, doctor? I ask. Of course. In fact, recently, it's been resurrected for cancer research. And it was a milestone drug once before, I point out, with catastrophic effects. Speaking of which, this kidney donation. Are there risks associated with the procedure? No more than for most surgeries, Dr. Chance says. 
Could Anna die from complications of this surgery? It's highly unlikely, Mr. Alexander. Well then, let's assume Anna comes through the procedure with flying colors. How will having a single kidney affect her for the rest of her life? It won't really, the doctor says. That's the beauty of it. I hand him a flyer that has come from the nephrology department of his own hospital. Can you read the highlighted section? He slips on his glasses again. Glasses again. There I am. Increased chance of hypertension. Possible complications during pregnancy. Dr. Chance glances up. Donors are advised to refrain from contact sports to eliminate the risk of harming their remaining kidney. I clasp my hands behind my back. Did you know that Anna plays hockey in her free time? He turns toward her. No, I didn't. She's a goalie. Has been for years now. I let this sink in. But since this donation is hypothetical, let's concentrate on the ones that have already happened. The growth factor shots, the DLI, the stem cells, the lymphocyte donations, the bone marrow, all of these myriad treatments Anna endured. In your expert opinion, doctor, are you saying that Anna has not undergone any significant medical harm from these procedures? <clears throat> significant? He hesitates. No, she is not. Has she received any significant benefit from them? Dr. Chance looks, looks at me for a long moment. Sure, he says. She's saving her sister. Anna and I are eating lunch upstairs at the courthouse when Julia walks in. Is this a private party? Anna waves her inside, and Julia sits down without so much as a glance toward me. How are you doing? she asks. Okay, Anna replies. I just want it to be over. Julia opens up a packet of salad dressing and pours it over the lunch she's brought. It will be, before you know it. She looks at me when she says this, briefly. That's all it takes for me to remember the smell of her skin and the spot below her breast where she has a beauty mark in the shape of a crescent moon. Suddenly, Anna gets up. I'm going to take Judge for a walk, she announces. Like hell you are. There are reporters out there still. I'll walk him in the hallway then. You can't. He has to be walked by me. It's part of his training. Then I'm going to pee, Anna says. That's something I'm still allowed to do by myself, right? She walks out of the conference room, leaving Julia and me and everything that shouldn't have happened but did. She left us alone on purpose, I realize. Julia nods. She's a smart kid. She can read people very well. Then she sets down her plastic fork. Your car is full of dog hair. I know. I keep asking Judge to pull it back in a ponytail, but he never listens. Why don't you just get me up? I grin. Because we were anchored in a no-wake zone. Julia, however, doesn't even crack a smile. Was last night a joke to you, Campbell? That old adage pops into my head. If you want to see God laugh, make a plan. And because I am a coward, I grab the dog by his collar. I need to walk him before we're called back into court. Julia's voice follows me to the door. You didn't answer me. You don't want me to, I say. I don't turn around. That way I don't have to see her face. When Judge DeSalvo adjourns us for the day at three because of a weekly chiropractic appointment, I walk Anna out to the lobby to find her father, but Brian's gone. Sarah looks around, surprised. Maybe he got a fire call, she says. Anna, I'll... But I put my hand on Anna's shoulder. I'll take you to the fire station. In the car, she is quiet. I pull into the station parking lot and leave the engine running. 
Listen, I tell her, you may not have realized it, but we had a great first day. Whatever. She gets out of my car without another word, and Judd hops up into the vacated front seat. Anna walks toward the station, but then veers left. I start to pull back out, and then against my better judgment, turn off the engine. Leaving Judge in the car, I follow her around the back of the building. She stands like a statue, her face turned up to the sky. What am I supposed to do? Say. I have never been a parent. I can barely take care of myself. As it turns out, Anna starts speaking first. Did you ever do something you knew was wrong, even though it felt right? I think of Julia. Yeah. Sometimes I hate myself, Anna murmurs. Sometimes, I tell her. I hate myself, too. This surprises her. She looks at me, and then at the sky again. They're up there, the stars, even when you can't see them. I put my hands into my pockets. I used to wish on a star every night. For what? Rare baseball cards for my collection. A golden retriever. Young, hot female teachers. My dad told me that a bunch of astronomers found a new place where stars are being born. Only it's taken us 2,500 years to see them. She turns to me. Do you get along with your parents? I think about lying to her, but then I shake my head. I used to think I'd be just like them when I grew up, but I'm not. And the thing is, somewhere along the way, I stopped wanting to be like them anyway. The sun washes over her milky skin, lights the line of her throat. I get it, Anna says. You were invisible too. Tuesday. The little fire is quickly trodden out, which, being suffered, rivers, rivers cannot quench. William Shakespeare, King Henry VI. Campbell. Brian Fitzgerald is my lock. Once the judge realizes that at least one of Anna's parents agrees with her decision to stop being a donor for her sister, granting her emancipation won't be quite as great a leap. If Brian does what I need him to, namely, tell Judge Pisalvo that he knows Anna has rights, too, and that he's willing to, and that he's prepared to support her, prepared to support, there I am, then whatever Julia says in her report will be a moot point. And better still, Anna's testimony will only be a formality. Brian shows up with Anna early the next morning, wearing his captain's uniform. I paste a smile on my face and get up, walking toward them with Judge. Morning, I say. Everyone ready? Brian looks at Anna. Then he looks at me. There is a question right there on the verge of his lips, but he seems to be doing everything he can not to ask it. Hey, I say to Anna, brainstorming. Want to do me a favor? Judge could use a couple of quick runs up and down the stairs, or he's going to get restless in court. Yesterday you told me I couldn't walk him. Well, today you can. Anna shakes her head. I'm not going anywhere. The minute I leave, you're just going to talk about me. So I turn to Brian again. Is everything all right? At that moment, Sarah Fitzgerald comes into the building. She hurries toward the courtroom, and seeing, and seeing Brian with me, pauses. Then she turns slowly away from her husband and continues inside. Brian Fitzgerald's eyes follow his wife, even after the doors close behind her. We're fine, he says, an answer not meant for me. Mr. Fitzgerald, were there times that you disagreed with your wife about having Anna participate in medical treatments for Kate's benefit? Yes, 
The doctor said that it was only cord blood we needed for Kate. They'd be taking part of the umbilicus that usually gets thrown out after giving birth. It wasn't anything that the baby was ever going to miss, and it certainly wasn't going to hurt her. He meets Anna's eyes, gives her a smile, and it worked for a little while, too. Kate went into remission, but in 1996, she relapsed again. The doctors wanted Anna to donate some lymphocytes. It wasn't going to be a cure, but it would hold Kate over for a while. I tried to draw him along. You and your wife didn't see eye to eye over this treatment? I didn't know if it was such a good idea. This time Anna was going to know what was happening, and she wasn't going to like it. What did your wife say to make you change your mind? That if we didn't draw blood from Anna this time, we'd need marrow soon anyway. How did you feel about that? You don't know what it's like, he says quietly, until your child is dying. You find yourself saying things and doing things you don't want to do or say, and you think it's something you have a choice about, but then you get a little closer to it, and you see you had it all wrong. He looks up at Anna, who is so still beside me that I think she has forgotten to breathe. I didn't want to do that to Anna, but I couldn't lose Kate. Did you have to use Anna's bone marrow eventually? Yes. Mr. Fitzgerald, as a certified EMT, would you ever perform a procedure on a patient who didn't present with any physical problems? Of course not. Then why did you, as Anna's father, think this invasive procedure, which carried risk to Anna herself and no personal physical benefit, was in her best interests? Because, Brian says, I couldn't let Kate die. Were there other points, Mr. Fitzgerald, when you and your wife disagreed over the use of Anna's body for your other daughter's, daughter's treatment? A few years ago, Kate was hospitalized and losing so much blood nobody thought she'd make it through. I thought maybe it was time to let her go. Sarah didn't. What happened? The doctors gave her arsenic, and it kicked in, putting Kate into remission for a year. Are you saying that there was a treatment which saved Kate that didn't involve the use of Anna's body? Brian shakes his head. I'm saying, I'm saying I was so sure Kate was going to die. But Sarah, she didn't give up on Kate and she came back fighting. He looks over at his wife. And now Kate's kidneys are giving out. I don't want to see her suffering, but at the same time, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. I don't want to tell myself it's over when it doesn't have to be. Brian has become an emotional avalanche, headed right for the glass house I have been meticulously crafting. I need to reel him in. Mr. Fitzgerald, did you know your daughter was going to file a lawsuit against you and your wife? No. When she did, did you speak to Anna about it? Yes. Based on that conversation, Mr. Fitzgerald, what did you do? I moved out of the house with Anna. Why? At the time, I believed Anna had the right to think this decision out which was something she'd be able to do living in our which wasn't something she'd be able to do living in our house after having moved out with Anna after having spoken to, spoken to her at great lengths about why she's initiated this lawsuit do you agree with your wife's request to, to have Anna continue to be a donor for Kate the answer we have rehearsed is no this is the crux of my case brian leans forward to reply Yes, I do, he says. Mr. Fitzgerald, in your opinion, I begin, and then I realize what he's just done. Excuse me? 
I still wish Anna would donate a kidney, Brian admits. Staring at this witness who has just completely fucked me over, I scramble for footing. If Brian won't support Anna's decision to stop being a donor, then the judge will have to will find it far harder to rule in favor of emancipation. At the same time, I'm patently aware of the smallest sound that has escaped from Anna, the quiet break of soul that comes when you realize that what looked like a rainbow was actually only a trick of the light. Mr. Fitzgerald, you're willing to have Anna undergo major surgery and the loss of an organ to benefit Kate? It is a curious thing, watching a small man, strong man, fall to pieces. Can you tell me what the right answer is here? Brian asks, his voice raw. Because I don't know where to look for it. I know what's right. I know what's fair. But neither of those apply here. I can sit and I can think about it, and I can tell you what should be and what ought to be. I can even tell you there's got to be a better solution. But it's been 13 years, Mr. Alexander, and I still haven't found it. He slowly sinks forward, too big in that tiny space, until his forehead rests on the cool bar of wood that borders on the witness stand. Judge DeSalvo calls for a ten-minute recess before Sarah Fitzgerald will begin her cross-examination, so that the witness can have a few moments to himself. Anna and I go downstairs to the vending machines, where you can spend a dollar on weak tea and weaker soup. She sits with her heels caught on the rungs of a stool, and when I hand her her cup of hot chocolate, she sets it down on the table without drinking. I've never seen my dad cry, she says. My mom, she would lose it all the time over Kate. But dad, well, if he fell apart, he made sure to do it where we weren't watching. Anna, do you think I did that to him? She asks, turning to me. Do you think I shouldn't have asked him to come here today? The judge would have asked him to testify even if you didn't. I shake my head. Anna, you're going to have to do it yourself. She looks up at me, wary. Do what? Testify. Anna blinks at me. Are you kidding? I thought that the judge would clearly rule in your favor if he saw that your father was willing to support your choices. But unfortunately, that's not what just happened. And I have no choice. No idea what Julie is going to say, but even if she comes down on your side, Judge DeSalvo will still need to be convinced that you're mature enough to make these choices on your own, independent of your parents. You mean I have to get up there? Like a witness? I have always known that at some point, Anna would have to stay to take the stand. In a case about emancipation of a minor, it stands to reason that a judge would want to hear from the minor herself. Anna might be acting skittish about testifying, but I believe that subconsciously it's what she really wants to do. What a, why else go to the trouble of instigating a lawsuit if not to make sure that you finally get to speak your mind? You told me yesterday I wouldn't have to testify, Anna says, getting agitated. I was wrong. Wait, wait, wrong tone. I was wrong. I hired you so that you could tell everyone what I want. It doesn't work that way, I say. You started this lawsuit. You wanted to be someone other than the person your family made you for the past 13 years. And that means you have to pull back the curtain and show us who she is. Half the grown-ups on this planet have no idea who they are, but they get to make decisions for themselves every day, Anna argues. They aren't 13. Listen, I say, getting to what I imagine is the crux of the matter. 
I know in the past, standing up and speaking your mind hasn't gotten you anywhere, but I promise you, this time, when you talk, everyone will listen. If anything, this has the reverse effect of what I've intended. Anna crosses her arms. There's no way I'm getting up there, she says. Anna, being a witness isn't really that big a deal. It is a big deal, Campbell. It's the hugest deal, and I'm not doing it. If you don't testify, we lose, I explain. Then find another way to win. You're the lawyer. I'm not going to rise to that bait. I drop my fingers on the table for patience. Do you want to tell me why you're so dead set against this? She glances up. No. No, you're not doing it. Or no, you won't tell me. There are just some things I don't like talking about. Her face hardens. I thought you, of all people, would be able to understand that. She knows exactly what buttons to push. Sleep on it, I suggest tightly. I'm not going to change my mind. I stand up and dump my full cup of coffee into the trash. Well then, I tell her, don't expect me to be able to change your life. I've done it. I finally finished this episode. Uh, pause so I can do the outro real quick. So, quick outro. Uh, the hell is in my pandas? Um... Apparently, my mother is currently sleeping, so I have to be quieter for this outro. But thanks for listening. Vibe with you next time. Peace.